This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Well, there are many parts of the country that are still dealing with the ramifications of Super Bowl Sunday this past weekend. Why? Uh, Well, obviously you have some places that are dealing with things like a parade or uh, you have some people planning their draft picks for next year, meaning some teams. You have uh, baseball uh, spring training, at least for pitchers and catchers, finally getting started, which is exciting for a lot of us who are primarily baseball fans. But for a lot of people that had Super Bowl parties, large or small, elaborate, not elaborate, one of the staple foods of Super Bowl parties around the country was pizza. I, I think, uh, I, I haven't looked this up in the last, you know, uh, just from memory, I'm not looking this up. I think the Super Bowl is the single biggest day for pizza sales out of the entire year. In the United States of America. I think it even rivals Buffalo Wings. It may even eclipse Buffalo Wings as the most popular food for Super Bowl Sunday. So why are we talking about this? Because in a lot of places, Monday was a holiday. Where I live, for instance, in New York City, Monday was a municipal holiday for Lincoln's birthday. So that means they didn't pick up the recycling. They didn't pick up the garbage. They ended up picking up the garbage the next day, didn't pick up the recycling. So it was waiting and waiting for the recycling to get picked up, finally. And I'm sure people in a lot of New Jersey towns, a lot of Philadelphia towns, a lot of places where they celebrate Lincoln's birthday as a holiday were experiencing the same thing. Sure enough, this has sparked a whole debate. What's the debate? Well, there's all sorts of good-natured rivalries that play out among friends during the Super Bowl. But there are some very contentious debates that arise after the game. That's at least how USA Today described what I'm about to tell you. When it's time to decide whether to toss pizza boxes into the trash or the recycling, what do you do? 800-848-9222, 1-800-848-9222. Pizza box, recyclable or trash? Trash. You you blew my mind with that. Why? Because there's grease on the box, and it's not good for the recyclables. What do you think, Kenneth? Well, I mean, you live with your parents, right? Yeah, we throw it in the garbage. You throw it in the garbage also? Yep. I am blown away. So uh, in our household, we are a... We are a pizza box recycling household. Look, I mean, if the pizza box is covered in 
in cheese, you know, than I, I see what these guys are saying. But I think pizza boxes are a recyclable item. Per per the town rules of what's what is and what isn't recyclable, pizza box isn't recyclable. Well, then let's go to the numbers, shall we? As my friend Warner Wolf would say, let's go to the videotape. Some 57% of Americans agree with me. It's nice to be in the majority for once. Uh, 57% of Americans say the boxes can be recycled. That's according to a survey by the National Paper and Packaging Board. The rest of the country agrees with Matt Blaze and Kenneth. They're busy watching Hitch and throwing their pizza boxes into the garbage. The rest of the country thinks boxes that hold the cheesy, chewy takeout staple are too greasy to be recycled. But in all seriousness, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, 800-848-9222, in all seriousness, not joking, 800-848-9222, because in our household we eat a lot of pizza, probably more than we should. But this confusion prompts all sorts of arguing among pizza consumers. They're trying to do the right thing. And uh, Mitch Hedlund, who's the founder and executive director of Recycle Across America, says this is one of the most contentious issues when it comes to recycling. The question absolutely, I'm sure, surfaced this weekend. I did just look up this number. There were nearly 13 million pizzas sold on Sunday. That's according to the American Pizza Community, a lobbying group that counts most of the nation's largest pizza chains among its members. So are pizza boxes recyclable? Yes or no? So um, the packaging board estimates roughly 3 billion, with a B, pizzas are boxed up across the country in any given year. That's about 600,000 tons of cardboard material. Can it be recycled? Well, The answer, according to the experts, is yes, the pizza boxes are recyclable as long as they're empty and not super greasy or wet. That's according to the paper box industry and the website berecycled.org. However, just because they can be recycled doesn't mean every local recycler actually accepts pizza boxes. You heard from Matt Blaze there that in his town, what town do you live in again, do you say? Or you don't want these lunatics showing up at your house? I don't care. And Brick, New Jersey. Brick, okay. Um, So just because they can be recycled doesn't mean every local recycler actually accepts these pizza boxes. Very few pizza boxes are too greasy to recycle. Almost all used pizza boxes in the recycling stream have an average grease content of less than 2%. That's according to a study by uh, box manufacturer Westrock. Grease would only weaken the strength of the cardboard products if it was greater than 20%. Now, we see the kind of greasy pizza that Matt Blaze likes to enjoy, but for the rest of... Oh, oh, I don't even know why I'm asking Kenneth to weigh in on this. He doesn't eat dairy. He doesn't know about pizza. Cheese can be filtered out during recycling. So my approach, which I've always used, of uh, not, you know, not recycling the pizza box if it's covered in cheese, that apparently was not the right way to go. Cheese tends to solidify in the box, uh, according to this study. 
and it gets screened out during the process of returning the box to pulp. No significant technical reasons prevent recycling, according to this study. Pizza box cardboard, listen to this, because this is wild, and this has made me a pizza box recycling evangelist, according to this data. Pizza box cardboard can be recycled up to seven times. Can you imagine? Seven times. 800-848-9222 if you want to weigh in. Do you recycle your pizza box or do you throw it away? And why? 800-848-9222. Let me tell you what's coming up. Coming up in a few minutes, we're going to talk with Spencer Clavin. He is a podcaster with The Daily Wire, and he's got a new book out. It's uh, it's pretty interesting, actually. I've been reading through it. How to Save the West. Look, I'm a big believer in the West. I like the West. I think the Western civilization and Western values have been a net positive for the world. So if it comes down to saving it, I'm all for saving it. We'll get into it. 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Keith in New Jersey. Hello, Keith. Hello. How are you? Well. We recycle in our town. You do, and we and have to. And in your household, you recycle the pizza boxes. Of course, and the reason being too is they we have a recycle center, and then we have pickup. But as a recycle center, they stopped collecting the uh, pizza boxes because some people were leaving it with pizza in it, and if it was overnight, it was attracting animals. So now they'll only take pizza boxes at the weekly pickup. Keith, cardboard. Keith, what, what are you near a train over there? What's going on over there? Yeah, what, what? Well, I'm, I'm in I'm in a town, uh, and I uh, we have trains. We have a lot of trains. All right, in but, New Jersey. So I was a little distracted by the train coming. So what you're saying is they uh, repeat the last part of what you said. I, I understand there's a recycling center, and I understand that there might be scraps of pizza that cause rats to come or something. But w- what does that mean in terms of operational recycling? Okay, the, they'll no longer take the cardboard pizza boxes at the recycling center because if they put it with the other cardboard and they don't take it away that day, during the night, it will attract uh, critters. So how so what you... they do is... but No, go ahead. Really? They put it in a garbage... They put it actually in a garbage truck. They have a stationary garbage truck that you fill up with cardboard, all different cardboard, and they crush it, and then at the end of the week, they take that to the recycle center. But what they do is, because of people leaving their pieces of crust or whatever in the box, is now they make you throw out the cardboard pizza boxes, the weekly uh, pickup, because we also have a pickup every week of cardboard. Right, so when, when, they pick, when they pick up the cardboard, that's when you put out the pizza boxes, right? Right. I mean, yeah, it used to be you would bring it to the recycle center with your other cardboard. Understood. Understood. Thank you, Keith. 800-848-9222. Pizza box. Throw it out or recycle it. What do you do and why? Norman is in Brooklyn. Hello, Norman. Hello, Frank. Okay. um, I'm a single guy, so I don't usually buy a whole pizza. So mostly I eat my pizza via the pizza store. Um but when I do order a pizza, I throw the box away in the garbage. I make sure I tear it up and uh, crush it down. You don't want to show the appearance of a box in the garbage. How come? Why do you throw it away rather than recycle it? Uh, um, Recycling is one day a week. 
I mostly recycle bottles. I don't really get into cardboard uh, recycling. Oh, so you don't recycle um, any cardboard? It's not just pizza boxes, bottles, cans. Yeah, to be I honest, see. I don't. Okay, well, no, I pre- uh, well, I'm not going to send the recycling. I, I don't really, you know what, you. Frank? I don't really like cardboard in my life. Is something I it rarely comes into my life. Real? I wish I could say the same thing. Thank you, Norman. I feel like I, I say this every day. One of the few chores that I'm responsible for. Uh, is uh, every week I will put on uh, put out the recycling, and it takes some time. The uh, the cans, the bottles. I, I I am no longer going to the grocer to cash them in, so I put them out uh, because I couldn't rationalize spending an hour a week doing this or an hour every two weeks when I complain that I have no time to do anything, including sleep. So how could I explain to my wife, okay, honey, uh, I have no time to sleep, no time to work, no time to do anything, uh, but I'm going to go to the grocery store for an hour and a half and cash in all these cans and bottles. And when I finish, maybe I'll end up with eight bucks. Uh, So uh, I I could not continue and uh, maintain domestic tranquility in our household. So I now put them out. So I put out the cans, the bottles, the papers, the... Uh, cardboard. You know, I get a lot of newspapers, obviously, so that's big. But I am perpetually amazed at the amount of cardboard that's coming into our house. I, I, I looked in our garage before I left. It's filled with cardboard. And I just did the recycling on Sunday. And yet, between Sunday and now, it's filled with cardboard. I get, you know, I think part of it is being a cat owner. I think part of it is being a parent. I think part of it is because... My wife is ordering things a lot, and it all comes in cardboard. So we get a lot of cardboard. All right, pizza box. You throwing it away or are you recycling it? We got uh, Spencer Clavin coming up in just a few minutes. We're going to talk with him. Loretta is in New Rochelle. Hello, Loretta. Hi, Frank. Um, I'm a big recycler. I mean, cereal boxes, toilet paper, rolls, you know, anything that's paper or cardboard, I recycle. But the pizza boxes, okay. How I, I decide um, whether it's clean or it's too dirty. And in my town, the town, um, the city calendar that comes with the recycling schedule, they have rules. And under paper, what can I recycle? Under paper, it says clean pizza boxes. So that's how I make my decision. So lots of times you get pizza and it's right on the box and it's greasy and it's dirty. But sometimes you get the pizza where they put like a wax paper down first. So once you remove that wax paper, then the box is pretty clean. So that's how I make my decision. I hate throwing that cardboard pizza box out, but if it's really caked with cheese and sauce and grease, then I do because the town specifically says clean pizza boxes. That makes sense. So um, how clean is clean, right? How much grease is, in your view, a permissible amount of grease to be on that box before you say, you know, this is too dirty to recycle. I'm throwing it away. Um, I don't worry about, like, the grease too much unless it's, like, a ton of grease. But if it has, like, a few spots of grease, I don't worry about it. I more, like, worry about – not that I worry, but I don't recycle. Like, if it has – dried up cheese on it and sauce or whatever toppings you have stuck to it, then I would definitely will not. But if it just has some, like, small grease spots, I will recycle it. Interesting. Yeah, I think you and I are pretty much uh, on the same page. I would say I recycle about 80% of the boxes that we come across, maybe 90%. Uh, sometimes if it's just too filthy, uh, I will crumple it up and throw it in the garbage. But I would say 90% it's recycled. 800-848-9222. What do you do? Pamela is in New Jersey. Hello, Pamela. 
Hello. Uh, my town specifically states throw it in the garbage. And I've been meaning to call on it, but I, I think it's because there's uh, like a wax or there's some other kind of material inside the cardboard to keep the grease maybe from leaking. I don't think it's total cardboard. Well, I uh, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, if you do speak to any officials from your town about that and you get any more answers, I'd be curious to know what they uh, what they say. Thank you, Pamela. We'll talk with Spencer Clavin in a moment. Scott is in Denver. Hello, Scott. Hi, Frank. I empathize with you on um, the amount of cardboard. I think it's because we get a lot of, like, deliveries, and it's almost like a hobby managing cardboard. Uh, I'd break the boxes down and so forth, but I don't recycle them. I just, I pay a company that picks them up and they do that. Well, when you say you pay a company, what what do you mean you pay a company? You pay a pizza box removal company? No, no. Waste management. There's one bin. It's all garbage. Oh, I see. I want them to haul away. You pay somebody to pick up your trash and you put the pizza box in the trash. Yeah. And I don't sort it or anything like that. They do. And they derive energy and they treat it responsibly and they're quite good uh well i I quoted a kind of generic company name and that's not them but uh when you first brought this topic up i was thinking you immediately reminded me of something i heard on local radio in denver years ago and unrelated subject they um they were talking about the introduction of um a possible one dollar coin and this um, radio host and his father, they sat around in the studio and counted up the change in their pockets. And, uh, well, based on how interesting that is, hopefully this is a short segment. Well, gee, thanks, Scott. Gee, I mean, that's, uh, that's sort I'm of... I'm looking forward to talking to you for a while. All right. I appreciate that, Scott. Thank you. Um, you know, I wish I wish I didn't have a guest coming up now. I mean, I, I am glad to talk to Spencer, but now... Like, I would do a whole hour on this just just out of spite to annoy uh, Scott in Denver. Um, but, see, now I can't because we've got Spencer Clavin waiting in the wings. Frankie and Brooklyn, we'll give you the last word. Yeah, hi, Frank. Yeah, well, I'm from Brooklyn. You're from Staten Island. You know, we got the recycling things to go. So the pizza box, you, you tear off the, the one that's a little greasy because they put a wax paper on the bottom. And that's it. That's uh, that's cardboard like you're supposed to re- recycle. It's Boom. okay. Simple right? as that. Simple as that, Frankie. I'm with you on that one uh, completely. Uh, Thank uh, you. Spencer Clavin joins me next. He has some ideas for how to save the West. And look, the West apparently needs some saving. We'll get into it straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. song lift every voice what they call the national the black national anthem put that discussion aside 
So today is um, the birthday of uh, my friend Danielle Hoffman Nee Johnson. And we've talked about Danielle before. She's a close friend. She and her husband, Rich. And um, she gave her kidney away to a co-worker, which I thought was very nice. She's a, she's a free spirit. She's a lot of fun and uh, a good person and hardworking, very involved civically. And so she, uh, it's her birthday today. So happy birthday, Danielle. And she sent me a list of bumper music song selections that she was hoping to play. And she said, all right, you got this song, that song, this song. But she said, any of those would be great. But this is a quote from Danielle Hoffman. But Call Me Maybe is my national anthem. I mean, that's, that's the most bizarre thing that I've ever heard. You can admit, I mean, it's, I have nothing against this song. It's catchy. Um, but, I mean, if you listen to the lyrics, if you listen to what they're singing about, and you take a grown woman that says this is her national anthem, I mean, I think Freud would have a field day with her. My goodness. Well, uh, I have been really eager uh, to talk with Spencer Clavin for a a long time. Uh, Spencer Clavin is a very bright guy. He is uh, someone who is a, a PhD from Oxford. He also happens to be the uh, associate editor at the Claremont Institute. He's a podcaster for the Daily Wire. And if people recognize that name, Clavin, perhaps it's because of his father, Andrew Clavin, who's a distinguished podcaster in his own right. Or maybe if you're a New York radio listener, you might remember the legendary Gene Clavin. I'm Paul McElroy at the editor's desk, Charles Finley. Next, from WOR, the heart of New York, Gene Clavin. What do you think, folks? Was that a, wasn't that good? Didn't Paul do a nice job? Okay, well, we're putting, you know, we're grading each of our newscasts today because uh, we, by the end of the month, we have to see whether the Wilson Siebert Award is going to be awarded to Paul. Of course, Paul's got so many awards already. And I don't know if, what your picture of him is, but he's a marvelously contemporary person. He wanders around here with his gold medallion and that open neck shirt down to his navel. He's kind of a, he's a fun person. Well, uh, Gene Clavin, whether it was on Clavin and Finch or any of others, any of his solo endeavors, I don't know that he spent very much time talking about how to save Western civilization. Thankfully, the Clavin line continues so that they can get around to explaining to us how to do it. Spencer, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Thank you so much for having me. And man, what a treat to hear that uh, voice from the past, my my grandfather. That's incredible. So, Spencer, did you uh, did you know your grandfather? I did. Uh, we were we were quite close while while he was alive. So that was that was very touching. Did the fact that he built such an, an incredible career in the field of radio did that influence your uh, chosen path to at least, I mean, you do a lot of different things, but at least a big part of what you do is you have this very popular podcast. Did that influence your decision at all? I think so. I mean, I think we're all influenced by our ancestors in a way that we're maybe not used to admitting in the modern day. But I like to joke that 
my voice is the only family heirloom. Every man <laughs> in my family sounds basically exactly the same. You can't tell us apart when we pick up the phone. And I have a picture, actually, of Gene Clavin in the studio up here in my office. So I'm very conscious of that as something that, uh, well, that's uh, pretty that neat. runs in my past. Uh, that's yeah. pretty neat. And, yeah. I, and you and I haven't spoken before, but I know your dad a little bit. And uh, and you sound just like him. So uh, it, uh, I, I, would, <laughs> I would definitely agree with your characterization. All right. Congratulations on the new book. I know it's out today. How to Save the West, Ancient Wisdom for Five Modern Crises. Let's get into uh, why the West needs saving. Uh, I have always been fond of Western civilization, and I think it's contributed a great deal to the world. W- are we really in danger? I know uh, Pat Buchanan wrote that book, Death of the West, and uh, a lot of people have been concerned through uh, for a whole host of reasons that the West might be on the decline, maybe not so much as the Roman Empire was, but not necessarily that far off. Why does the West need saving? Yeah, I mean, of course, there are plenty who will dismiss this as just conservative fear-mongering. But this is a book that is based on the radical idea that the past has something to say to the present. And it's amazing how out of fashion that idea is. You know, you hear so much these days that the great texts of Athens and Jerusalem, these treasures that come down to us uh, through our traditions, that they're backwards, they're superstitious, they're out of date, even maybe they're racist and sexist and colonialist, any name they can throw at this stuff, uh, they will throw at it. And I was lucky that I grew up surrounded by these great works. And what I realized is that that meant I was surrounded by friends. Um, and, and so I knew very early on that this whole narrative uh, that the Western tradition is somehow wrong or it's not necessary, um, that, was, that was just simply ridiculous. It was designed to keep you from finding out um, what, what, what treasures these works are. And so if, does the West need saving? I would argue yes, absolutely. At this moment, especially when we're up against really fundamental questions, things like what's our place in the universe? Uh, what's a human being and why are we different from machines? Um, Those are questions that have been around basically for as long as humanity has existed, and the great minds of our tradition have wrestled with them and come up with deep, profound answers, answers that are saner than what you'll get from our modern gurus. Um, And what that means is we're not alone. I wrote the book because I wanted people to have access to this tradition and to uh, meet some of these minds that can help us. Uh, to find our way forward in a confusing time. Okay, before we get into what these crises are and what the solutions might be to some of them, uh, and we're talking with Spencer Clavin, he's the author of the book How to Save the West, you have studied uh, the classics for many years, as you alluded to. I know on your podcast you've spent a lot of time talking about uh, Dante and uh, going through his circles of hell and the afterlife. Really interesting content uh, on there, by the way, which I do recommend. Who is your favorite classical author? Is it Dante? It's a great question. And, you know, I think a lot of times it depends varying on, you know, what just uh, what's most on my mind at the moment. Each problem brings up different issues and and each author kind of has different virtues. But if there's one person from antiquity that I just feel like is hovering over my shoulder, uh, it's actually someone from even further back then. Dante, it's Aristotle, the great Greek philosopher. Um, and, and the reason for that is, you know, there were, of course, great philosophers before Aristotle. There was Socrates and Plato, names that we all know. Um, but it was Aristotle who really crystallized this idea that um, there is more to the world than just matter. We're not just bodies. We also have uh, souls. 
And yet our souls are embodied. We live in the world in the here and now. Um, in the digital era, it's really easy to think that we can just kind of float up into some sort of disembodied space, the cloud, just live on Zoom, uh, just live through lockdown and go on your computer. Um, but Aristotle brings us back to the, the truth uh, that what we are as human beings is uh, souls in bodies, spirits that are expressed uh, through the flesh, through the here and now. And I think that's so important right now. So I'm not going to ask you to necessarily go through all five of these crises, but give us some of these crises that you think uh, could spell big trouble for the West if they're not addressed. Yeah, the questions that I raise in the book uh, have to do, like I said, with these fundamental issues. The first one is called the crisis of reality, and that's just, is there anything that's true or false? Absolutely, whether uh, anybody says so or not, or is it all relativism, all just my truth and your truth? Uh, I think that's a really crucial one. Um, the crisis of meaning, which is the question, you know, whether there's anything beyond just our kind of uh, scientific world of, um, you know, of, of just mere evolution and, and matter. Um, that's crucial in this moment. And, and maybe the, the central one, the most profound one, is the crisis of religion. Can we still believe in God, even in a world that seems to have been remade by science? Um, I'm drawing on the traditions in this book to argue that, yes, we actually can, and not only can we, we? We need to. Um, and I think that's maybe the most urgent one, um, which we get to kind of in the middle of the book, uh, is, is can we believe? So when we talk about these five crises that the, that the West is facing, reality, the body, meaning, religion, and what you term the crisis of regime, what can we learn from these uh, ancient authors of old? What wisdom would apply to the 21st century to help us through some of these? Yeah, uh, it's interesting because when you think about what we're supposed to do, especially when everything feels like the problems are just so big, um, it can feel like the uh, this, this kind of despair sets in, right? There's just, uh, everything is so, as they say, systemic um, that it's hard to know what to do. And the answers can feel too simple. Uh, it can feel like, well, you know, there's really not so much that I as an individual can do. But the truth is, as you study this stuff more and more, you realize the simplest things are often the most profound. They're what you arrive at after the longest and deepest thought. So that's the first thing is that you, you're not uh, too small. You're not too simple to actually be involved in the solution to these civilizational problems. And then the second thing, which I draw on in that crisis of the regime section, um, is this notion in Greek of what's called philia, politike philia, and that's love, civic friendship, uh, neighborliness, connection, and the here and now face-to-face, these personal relationships um, in an age when we're being divided against one another by identity politics, when we are being taught to think of one another in terms of abstractions, um, like, you know, systemic racism, or this guy is inherently oppressive uh, because of this, that, and the other. Um, It's the real-life connections that we make in our local communities, in our school boards, in our churches, in our neighborhoods, these sorts of things uh, which are recovered in the ancient tradition um, that still can stand us in good stead and help us to rebuild some of our institutions, which we sorely need. Is it your view that uh, society, obviously a lot of the wisdom that you're drawing upon has been around for millennia, is it your view that Western civilization has ignored, um, you know, the wisdom of the ancients for um, the most recent history, or have we um, always been, uh, always been, um, utilizing some of this, but now we're finally at a point where we're not utilizing it. What what role has the wisdom of people like Aristotle played 
informing modern history. And where is that wisdom today? Well, at the beginning of the book, I quote this passage from Tacitus, the great Roman imperial historian. Uh, And Tacitus has somebody say, you know, (laughs) humanity is always uh, hating on the present, basically. We Mm. always wish we were in the golden age of the past. And so there's obviously some amount of this that's just baked in. Um, And you could say, well, maybe we're just always kind of nostalgic for a a golden age gone by. Um, But there is another dimension of this, too, that answers your question. Um, Something especially that has happened in the last hundred years or so. Um, The paleontologist G.G. Simpson said something to the effect that, you know, every good answer to every question was basically thought up after Charles Darwin. And before that, everything is obsolete. All of these kind of old fashioned sheep herders, goat herders from uh, the Stone Age. And, you know, I'm I'm uh, no critic of uh, evolution per se or science per se. um, But that idea, I think, is really wrong and has really cut us off from the sources of our ancestral wisdom. This idea that science is not just a good thing, but a totalizing explanation for all of reality. Everything can be boiled down to into equations, um, into facts and figures, nothing that can be uh, that can't be measured is real. Um, we know these things aren't true. We know there's more to life uh, than just physical science, just materialism. We have uh, souls as well as bodies. The human heart is real, and the things, the truth that it accesses do exist. Um, and so, if anything, I think in this book, I'm trying to recover people's connection, ownership over um, those deeper truths that go uh, beyond just the truths of, of materialism. And I do think that uh, uniquely in our age, we've been trained to ignore that. I, I, heard, I uh, You mentioned Charles Darwin. I understand it was Darwin's birthday recently. Happy birthday to uh, him and everybody that's celebrating yep. Darwin Day. Uh, you, you talk about the need for people to make connections with one another, whether it's in modern society or uh, back thousands of years ago. But you are a little bit tough on uh, social media, including uh, the uh, n- biggest one that uh, that people plug into these days, Facebook. Why? If social media is something that can help people connect with one another, and you're saying that connection is one of the things that can help society avoid uh, some of these crises, why are you so tough on social media? That's a great question. I mean, I, I do argue uh, something which actually, obviously, social media wasn't around in the ancient world, but this is something that I do draw, the principle is something I draw from antiquity, um, is that everything human has a a good side and a bad side. Um, And technology is no exception. And in fact, one of the things that we find argued in in political philosophy is that the things that are noblest in nature become worst when they fall. Um, And so human connection, of course, is a good thing. It's a crucial thing. Um, But there are also programs that have been written um, by our kind of overlords in, in big tech that are avowedly designed to hack into our impulse to connect, to gamify it, um, to sort of suck it dry of all of its, uh, you know, all of its, all of its humanity, and uh, turn it into a question of, of metrics and abstractions. And and so it's not that we can't use this technology well. It's not that we can't um, think carefully about how to enhance our lives with uh, even social media. Uh, it's just that. It does require some thought, and it means rooting everything we do first and foremost in our embodied human life. The stuff that came 
first, um, is living in, in real world and in, in physical space. Um, and then we can build outward from there to add on our tech. But it can't become the center of our lives because then, like anything that uh, is taken to excess, it, it will corrupt us and it will become corrupted itself. You spend some time talking about Plato and one of his most infamous ideas, which is that art has political power. Tell me where you view art in modern society today, the political power that's in the art world, and what that means in terms of uh, avoiding some of these five crises that you're trying to avoid. Yeah, this is a perfect example of that idea that I was just talking about. The things which are good, that have value for us, um, can become dangerous precisely because of how valuable they are, because because of how uh, attractive they are to us inherently. Um, in Plato, there is this idea, and I'm paraphrasing him here, but I think this is a true uh, articulation of what he's saying. I think it's a powerful thought um, that art is weapons-grade emotion. Uh, it's a distillation of our kind of emotional reaction to the world. Um, in, in Greek, the word is mimesis, that it kind of reproduces or represents um, the inner life of, of humanity. And famously, as you say, infamously in the Republic, uh, Plato's Socrates says, this is such a powerful tool that we just can't let it into our perfect state at all. Now, I think he's being uh, tongue-in-cheek to a certain extent, but he's forcing this thing to the extreme to show you what we're reckoning with here, uh, to show you that it's not just a kind of plaything, it's not just an entertainment, um, it's actually something to be handled with enormous care. And whether we admit it or not, we believe this too in our society, and that's why we have what we call our culture wars. I write a lot in the book about uh, the passion with which both sides, conservatives and liberals, approach what should be shown on Netflix, what should be honored at the Oscars. Um, and the reason that we care so much about that is because we know art is more than a plaything. Um, it's something that molds our soul, that educates and teaches us. Uh, Cicero said of rhetoric that it can move, delight, and instruct. Moere, uh, docere, delectare. All three of these things are always part of uh, our artistic endeavor. And that means we should uh, care as a society about what art gets honored um, and what kind of truths or falsehoods it's telling about uh, the good. It, it needs to be leading us to something more uh, than just pleasure. It needs to be leading us to those higher moral truths. You um, obviously spend a lot of time focusing on faith in the book. What role do you think faith has in the future of the West? We've seen a tremendous decline in people that attend church or any organized religious service uh, over the years, not just in the United States, but in, in Europe as well. What do you think that portends for the future of the West? Well, there is no getting around this one. And I kind of feel like when I talk about this, like, I wish I could get around it, you know, because everybody immediately will begin to say, oh, you're forcing your religion down, down my throat. You're, uh, you know, trying to impose some kind of state religion. And uh, I agree, as everybody, uh, I think, does in some level that in this country, we have a, a good and righteous protection um, from state-imposed sects, from the state coming in and telling me you have to um, be part of this or that church. Um, and, you know, I personally belong to a, a particular church. I think it would be great if everybody joined it tomorrow in the entire world. Um, but that's not really what I'm arguing in this book. What I'm saying here is is something else. Um, 
in the Bible, there is a line from the Psalms, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Um, and when we read that, I think for a long time, I read that line and just thought, oh, this is kind of just a dig at atheists. It's like atheists are dumb, basically, would be a modern translation of this line. And that's kind of a funny way of, of putting it. But I think the line is saying something much deeper than that. Um, in, in the Psalms, what we get is um, this truism that if you believe you are an atheist, if you believe you have no God, you believe you don't worship, um, you're fooling yourself. You're making a fool out of yourself and deceiving yourself because everybody already has something they put in the position of highest good. Just by waking up in the morning, uh, getting out of bed, we do things because we want stuff and we want things because of what we believe to be good, some benefit that we believe we'll get. Uh, The Greeks talked about this in terms of telos, the goal or the final cause And since we all have one or several causes for what we do, um, it implies that we have an ultimate thing that we believe is good in itself, the thing to which we will ultimately bend the knee, what we'll put in the position of highest authority. And if we tell ourselves we're not doing that, um, we won't stop worshiping. We'll just worship without realizing it and worship under other names. And we've seen this, I think, uh, in great evidence throughout the summer of 2020 when people kneeled, Black Lives Matter rallies, and uh, begged for absolution for forgiveness. People said that you needed to trust capital T.S. the science and believe in Dr. Fauci, who represented the science as if he were its priest. Um, Again, it's not as if science is bad. Science is a good thing, a tool for humanity to learn about the physical world. But when we start talking about it in these occult, cultic terms, there's something else going on than just knowledge production. That's worship. That's the human heart needing something to bow down to. And so what I'm arguing in the book is simply that we ought to be aware of this. We ought to realize that everybody is worshiping. And then we ought to turn to the tradition and ask, what's worthy of our worship? What or whom can we worship uh, that will not enslave us, but will set us free? There is somebody that will set us free if we worship him, but spoiler alert, it's not Anthony Fauci. Um, and the God whom uh, we who really is worthy of, of that worship is to be found in the scripture and the wisdom texts of Athens and Jerusalem, especially uh, the Judeo-Christian scriptures. The there- we're talking with Spencer Clavin. His book is How to Save the West. It's out today. Check it out. There is certainly an irony in you, a Christian who's preaching, um, you know, Judeo-Christian values, also at the same time saying that we should go back and listen to the wisdom of a bunch of pagan authors, Plato, Aristotle, a lot of these other folks were anything but monotheistic. How do you reconcile that dichotomy? Uh, Yeah, you and I are not the first people to worry about this question. Uh, Tertullian, very early on, has this famous line, what hath Athens to do with Jerusalem? And ever since, this has stood as a challenge to people like me who want to say that both strains of this tradition are worthy or worthwhile, deserve our attention. Um, But there is another line of Christian thought, and it's the one I subscribe to, which says, you know, in John, the first chapter of John's Gospel, um, it's said that through him all things were made, and without him not one thing was made that was made. Um, And so whatsoever things are true, lovely, and of good report, anything that has been discovered that is recognizably true in in human history, um, anywhere uh, that is absolutely true, that truth belongs to God, for God is master of the whole world. And what's really interesting uh, when you understand that is when you read these pagan philosophers, guys like Aristotle, Plato, um, who lived in polytheistic societies, um, almost all of them uh, who thought deeply about this question ended up trending toward a kind of monotheism. Um, you get this in Plato's Timaeus. You get this in many of Aristotle's works and in the Euthyphro, where Socrates is kind of wrestling 
Um, with the problems inherent in polytheism, if you have multiple gods, you have multiple competing goods, you're torn uh, in a universe that doesn't actually have a, a, a moral center, any moral absolute. Um, and so all of these guys were leaning more and more toward some kind of uh, absolute god, uh, the demiurge, as he's described in, in the Timaeus. Um, and so what you see is uh, over the course of these traditions, these eternal truths that are uh, shared among all humanity start to emerge as common uh, to the whole tradition, even though these texts come from very, very different times and places. If uh, people have not seen your Young Heretics videos before, explain, explain to folks what this is and uh, what your focus is in these videos. Sure. This was a podcast a series of videos that I began um, simply because I, I wanted to share with people the things that I had always benefited from. I, I thought that, you know, I was really lucky to grow up in a house full of books. Uh, I had to learn over time that that wasn't normal, that uh, I was uh, blessed in this way. Um, and once I did learn that, as I went through my education, I really started to feel strongly that people were being denied access to their inheritance, that there was this treasure house of wisdom that comes down to us. It's not just uh, dusty, dry old tomes. It's not backwards, prejudiced, dead guys. Um, it's actually uh, wisdom for you and for me about what the best way is uh, to seek excellence at being human. Uh, that's for everybody. And one of the first things I learned as I started to put this stuff out into the Internet um, is that there really is a hunger for it. People were messaging me saying things like, you know, I'm on my tractor and I'm listening to you talk about Aristotle and I feel actually enriched. I, I don't feel bored. Um, and the more I heard that, the more I realized there really is something here. Um, the classical education uh, that we, many of us, were denied growing up is still on offer. And this is one way in which, you know, here's a good side of tech. Here's something I can be really positive about when it comes to technology. Uh, we would never have been able to reach out and communicate to one another in quite this way before. Um, now we can, and it has become my life's mission. It's why I did the Young Heretics podcast, and it's also why I wrote this book. Spencer, best of luck with, with the book. I appreciate the time. Uh, I'll look forward to chatting again soon, and I hope everybody checks out uh, youngheretics.com and uh, the new book, How to Save the West. Appreciate it, Spencer. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. This is another Danielle Hoffman, Mee Johnson birthday bumper music selection. Uh, Talk Dirty to Me by Poison. And um, anybody that knows Danielle, not the least bit surprised that she would pick one of these songs. Now, uh, we do post all the songs in the Facebook group. If you want to join the Facebook group and be part of the problem. I'm just kidding. We'd prefer you be part of the solution. You could just go to uh, Facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano or just search uh, Morano Radio Fans and Haters and join. And uh, in addition to being the place where you learn about the songs that we play on the show, it's uh, meant to be a discussion group. And uh, we just ask that you make an effort to be nice to one another. Uh, you don't have to be nice to me. Just be nice to one another. I just uh, came across one comment of somebody in the group. Um, and this is exactly what I want to be doing, is being a hall monitor for 3,300 people who can't use the Internet responsibly. Uh, the truth is there's only three or four people that are problematic. But um, one person was calling another person in the group like a curse word. I mean, it's a mild curse word, but I can't have that. So uh, I, I, I hate to suspend anybody because I am a free speech fundamentalist. But I can't have people getting insulted and cyberbullied because somebody disagreed with them. So I just had to suspend one person for, uh, I think, a day or two. So I just don't call anybody a name. You could just say, I disagree with you. Right? What's what's the problem with that? Move on. We, we, we'll agree to disagree. Um, but uh, that's that. Uh, so if you want to be part of the problem or the solution, facebook.com slash groups. Slash Radio Morano. Hey, uh, speaking of podcasts, and I know Spencer Clavin does host a very popular podcast. The You can also want to check out the Darker Side of Midnight podcast as hosted by uh, Matt Blaze, Alex Barnard, and Kenneth. And that's kind of a, a post-game show of this program. Uh, that's available at redapplepodcastnetwork.com. How is that uh, podcast going, Matt, from your perspective? I, I think it's going very well. We do it every single morning right after the show is finished. So we prepare it in 15 minutes and we talk. And we do well, that's, 20 minutes, That's 30 innovative. Minutes. So you talk. We talk. Wow. We talk about the show. That's We're great. rolling, baby. We're rolling. That's great. Well, why should people listen? What's fun about it? Well, we give our perspectives a little bit more um, about things that you talked about, our opinions. We talk about you. We talk about if we agree or disagree with something that you said, and we add our own little spin on that. And it is a podcast, so it's not on the air. It's not regulated by the FCC. Oh, boy. Which means, you know, anything goes within reason, of course. All right. People and... should, uh, you know what? People should uh, check it out. And you know what I'd love to do? If you have actually listened to it, we have no guests next hour. So if you have listened to The Darker Side of Midnight, yeah. call in next hour and give us your honest opinion. Right. And uh, Kenneth, don't screen out people based on <laughs> what grade they're giving. As long as they're on a good phone connection and their radio is turned off. I would um, love to hear your honest opinion on the darker side of midnight. 800-848-9222. Well, I can tell you this. Remember you read the email last yeah, week yeah, yeah. about the cursing and it's uh, juvenile yeah. and stern Which, Yeah, I believe. Yeah. Well, that person did message me oh. afterwards and said, hey, you know you guys have won me over. Whoa. He said, 
After I listen to the other side of minute, I immediately go and listen to the darker You're side kidding. of minute. Well, all right. Well, I'd be curious if there's more than one person that fits that description. 800-848-9222. You know, it's funny. Um, last thing I'll mention on the podcast front, although we do want you to subscribe to my podcast as well. Just search The Other Side of Midnight. Wherever podcasts are available, hit the subscribe button. If you could leave us a nice review, that helps us out a lot as well. And uh, the short form, uh, the, the Frank Morano interviews and more podcast is also very popular. If you could hit the subscribe button there and uh, leave us a nice review, that helps us out. But, um, you know, one person asked me for uh, the interview that I had did, done with Carl Reiner 10 years ago. They wanted to hear the whole thing, not just the clip that we uh, played on the radio. And... Um, my uh, former employer, they don't have my podcasts up anywhere. So I'm going to see if I can maybe get permission from them to post these on my own. And maybe I'll post them to YouTube, right? So if you want to subscribe to my YouTube channel, it's Morano Vision. And if I can get permission, I'm going to post them on there. Until next hour, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. notice how there never seems to be enough money to build really decent public infrastructure like mass transit, better schools, and yet when a multi-billion dollar sports team demands a new stadium, the local governments, the state governments, they rush to shower billions to billionaires. Now, we talked about this a great deal during the Buffalo Bills boondoggle in New York that Kathy Hochul was responsible for. I thought it was a travesty. I thought it was a travesty. I am not in favor of giving um, taxpayer money to billionaires to build ballparks. I mean, I'm sorry, and I'm a sports fan, but and I'm not anti-billionaires uh, because if if we didn't have billionaires, I wouldn't have a job, quite frankly. So, but. It struck me as worth exploring this week, given Sunday's Super Bowl. You know, Sunday's Super Bowl took place at State Farm Stadium. That's where the Arizona Cardinals have played since 2006. It was built after the billionaire team owner, Michael Bidwill, and his family spent years hinting that they would move the Cardinals out of Arizona if the team didn't get a new stadium. And their blitz eventually worked. The Arizona taxpayers and the city of Glendale paid over two-thirds of the $455 million construction tab. Now, what's sad about this is that if this was a one-off, if this only happened in Arizona, or it only happened in Dallas, or it only happened in Buffalo, that would be great. But it happens everywhere. This is now baked in to the cost of doing business. 
the local governments, the local taxpayers are now essentially expected to deal with this sort of corporate welfare. And I don't think that's right. So the stadiums stick the public with the bill. And uh, Robert Reich, who I realize a lot of people, you know, may find as too liberal, he had a very good video on this. I'm going to link to it on my uh, my Facebook page if you want to if you want to watch it when you get a chance. Facebook.com/slash Morano Fan. That's uh, Facebook.com/slash Morano Fan. But because I I thought he was right on the money, uh, quite frankly. Robert Reich um, lays out the steps that this boondoggle involves each and every time. Step one is usually. A billionaire buys a sports team. Just about every NFL franchise owner has a net worth over a billion dollars, except for the Green Bay Packers, which are a a special case. The same goes for many franchise owners in other sports. Like My favorite baseball team, the Mets, is owned by Steve Cohen, the billionaire hedge fund guy. Their fortunes don't just help them buy teams. It also gives them a lot of clout which they do cash in when they want to get a great deal on new digs for their team. Again, the perfect example is Kathy Hochul and the Buffalo Bills. She gets a lot of money in campaign contributions from not only the ownership of the Bills, but from all the other ancillary vendors that stand to benefit financially from the Buffalo Bills stadium. Step two is a billionaire that owns this team pressures the local government. Since 1990, franchises in major North American sports leagues have intercepted upwards of $30 billion, with a B, $30 billion worth of taxpayer funds from state and local governments to build stadiums. And the funding itself is just the beginning of these sweetheart deals. Sports teams often get big property tax breaks. Look at Madison Square Garden and the Dolans. Madison Square Garden, they haven't paid taxes in decades. Reimbursements on operating expenses like utilities and security. Do small businesses get that? No. On game days, uh, it's just, it's basically a parade of taxpayer-funded largesse. And most of these deals also let the owners keep the revenue from naming rights. Let's the owners keep the revenue from luxury box seats and concessions like the Atlanta Braves $150 hamburger. Even worse, these deals often put taxpayers on the hook for stadium maintenance and repairs. We, the taxpayers, are essentially paying for the homes of our favorite sports teams, but we don't really own those homes. We don't get to rent them out, and we still have to buy expensive tickets to visit them. Whenever these billionaire owners try to sell us on a shiny new stadium, they claim it will spur economic growth, which will all benefit from jobs and all sorts of tourism, all sorts of other things. But study after study has shown that that's not the case. As a University of Chicago economist put it, If you want to inject money into the local economy, it would be better to drop it from a helicopter than invest in a new ballpark. I mean, you think about it. The people of Buffalo, let's say it's $400 million in taxpayer money. Let's say. 
Do you think the people of Buffalo would be better served if that cash came raining down from the sky and they could spend it on whatever they wanted? Or do you think it's better served for a football stadium that they still have to pay a lot of money to go to the games for? But what makes sports teams special is they are one of the few realms of collective identity that we have left. We saw that with the 113 million people that watched the Super Bowl, right? It's, you really feel like you're part of a larger community for at least a couple hours. And the owners of these teams, whether it's the owner of the Arizona Cardinals or the Dallas Cowboys or the Buffalo Bills, they prey on that love that millions of us have for our favorite teams. You know, you mentioned... Walter O'Malley's name in Brooklyn, even more than even 70 years after the Dodgers moved out of Brooklyn, and they'll throw they'll throw rocks at you because nobody wants to be the guy that lost the Brooklyn Dodgers or the New York Giants. And then that's the final step in this playbook, and it works really well in football. Uh, not so well in baseball where it's a little tougher to do this. They threaten to move the team. You have these obscenely rich owners who threaten to or actually do rip the teams out of their communities if they don't get the subsidies that they demand. Just look at the Seattle Supersonics. The Starbucks uh, owner, Howard Schultz, owned this team, but he failed to secure public funding to build a new stadium. So Mr. Coffee, Howard Schultz, sold the team to another wealthy businessman who moved it to Oklahoma. Now that's a taste more bitter than Starbucks coffee. So we are underfunding public necessities. You know, I was thinking about uh, David in the Bronx the other day, who doesn't have enough money to pay for the insulin that he needs to survive. And yet, He lives in a state where we're giving hundreds of millions of dollars to the Buffalo Bills. Doesn't anybody see anything wrong with that? I do. We can spend $400,000 on a Sidewinder missile to miss a benign UFO, a flying octagon, but we have no money for insulin. We can give $100 million to the Ukrainians to fight a war, but we have no baby formula. We are underfunding stuff that we need, bridges, tunnels, medicine, schools, in order to funnel money to billionaires for something that they could easily afford on their own. Now, I'm all for capitalism, but if we're going to have capitalism, let's have capitalism. Let's not have, essentially what they've done is they've privatized reward, meaning The private owners get to keep all the money, and they've socialized risk. We have to foot the bill for the stadium, but they keep the money. It is a backwards proposition. So, uh, and yet, except for Robert Reich and me, who do you hear complaining about this? 800-848-9222. Instead of spending billions on extravagant stadiums, We should invest taxpayer money in things that actually improve the lives of everyone, like transportation, 
not just the bottom line of profitable sports teams and their owners. If you're not a Bills fan, for instance, how are you really benefiting if you're a New York State taxpayer or an Erie County taxpayer from that brand new stadium they're going to get? Same thing in Arizona, same thing in Dallas, same thing wherever there's one of these nice uh, publicly funded stadiums. Because when it comes to stadium deals, the only winners are the owners of these sports teams. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. You're welcome to comment on uh, anything else you like as well, including the uh, later side, the darker side of Midnight Podcast, which I would love to hear your reviews of. Seriously. Honest, objective reviews. Good, bad, or indifferent. 800-848-9222. Pete is in New Jersey. Hello, Pete. Yes, Frank. Yes. The main and the ultimate message of the New Testament theology is that there are only two ways for the mortal human to expire and die. It's the zero and the one, similar to the computer. And they are represented by the two convicted felons, one crucified at the right-hand side of Jesus, the other at the left-hand side. That's the message. The one at the left represents the zero. The one at the right represents the one. The only correct way to die, which we all have to do, regardless of anybody's opinion, and we are to live and die as that convicted criminal, humbly begging for clemency and mercy. So God the Most High, he invented science. Science I'm going to go out on a limb and say high. this is not going to get tied uh, into the sports the stadium discussion. simply means knowledge, Let's but it see. does not it imply wisdom. And so the zero and the one, God the Most High, allowed us to discover this. It symbolizes free will. So expiring, we have to, if you wish for eternal life in paradise— you have to expire the way that the criminal on the right-hand side of Jesus died, humbly, honestly, earnestly, confessing his crimes. And crucified. And, and he was, he's had numerous hours of torture and crucifixion. Jesus had a conversation with him, too, whereas Jesus ignored the one on his left. He represents the zero he uses his free will for the zero, and Jesus ignored him whatsoever, but had an extensive conversation with the one on the right. All right, All right so, Pete. So, Thank you. So that's the, that's the ultimate message, because every human, regardless of the, their opinion, every human— I guess the connection to sports dies, stadiums is no this, this is sort of out of left field. That's the best Or any other thing— they go Fine. to render an account to their creator. All right, Pete. Thank you very much. Yes. I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, I'm not, not disrespecting Jesus or any of the convicted felons that uh, that uh, were crucified alongside him, but it's just if we turn this into a, you know, a you have to accept Jesus situation, we're going to have four hours of nonstop phone calls that I think will tend to be a bit repetitive. 800-848-9222. Got a pair of mics on the line. Michael in his bedroom. Hello, Michael. Hey, Frank, as always. Um, Governor Hochul, and I'm not sure if you mentioned it, she gave her husband a sweetheart concession yeah. deal 
Well, I mentioned this at the time at the time that that it that it was reported, but I didn't mention it today. You're right about that. But but uh, I don't want to even just make it a. Um, a, a criticism that's unique to Hochul, because my criticism is really with with taxpayer subsidizing uh, stadiums all over the country. Yeah, yeah, and and what what do these guys file for tax returns? Yeah, I, I mean, not very much. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. I the, mean, I think that's their that's their goal. But um, bum. No, oh, that's not bad, Michael. I've heard worse. Uh, that's uh, that's for sure. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Corey is in Florida. Hello, Corey. Hey, Frank. Okay. I'm in Hollywood now. Uh, oh, nice. Yeah, I'm usually in Palm Bay. Do, um, do they have a Walk yeah. of Fame in Hollywood, Florida? A Walk of Fame. Yeah, you uh, know, like think... how Hollywood, California, has the the you know the Walk of Fame. Does Hollywood, Florida, have anything like that? No, but we do have the uh, the uh, Seminole Hard Rock. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I, I took them for a grand last night. Oh, really? What were you playing? <laughs> Blackjack. Nice. Uh, how much a hand blackjack. that you walked away with eight grand? Uh, I went to hundred dollars. Hundred dollars a hand. Yeah, well, that's pretty good. Good for you. Yeah, well, I went up quick from the twenty-five dollar minimum, and then everybody was walking in on me and. I said, "All right, I'm going up to high stakes." See, so, you know, I I don't think I would ever be up eight grand because I um if I, I usually what I do in my own brain I have a number that of either win or loss that I quit at, and usually usually that number is around two grand. So I I would be afraid to keep playing once I was up two grand because I wouldn't want to lose lose it all. But you know you you. Uh, you you have the gumption and uh, sometimes it pays off. Good for you. I totally feel you. And but the the shoe was hot and the dealer was throwing me blackjacks and he said keep going. And hey, it went in a shoe and a half. That's I won that that amount of time. So you know, two hours sitting one, down. One of the things I've noticed in more more and more places, and I don't, I don't know what the Hard Rock does in Atlantic City, and I'm curious if you could tell me what they do in Florida. I've noticed that more and more casinos, especially for the digital blackjack, but even the conventional blackjack, instead of paying three to two, the blackjack is paying six to five. What did, what, what did your casino do? Um, I think they do three to two. Three to two. Okay, good. Good. Yeah. And also, uh, the high stakes tables here, they will actually hand shuffle the end of the shoe. It's not, uh, you know, the machine that does it. Some, you know, they put it into a machine and it automatic shuffles. But these guys actually hand shuffle it if you go to the higher stakes. But that's exactly what I was. I came in with two grand, and I said, if I win five, I'm good. But I, when it's hot, it's hot. And then the new shoe came out, and I said, you know what? I You got to know when to walk away. And I said, thank you. Appreciate it. And I, I walked off. But Good for you. I. That's not what I was calling about. I was calling about this uh, nepotistic. It's kind of a nepotistic 
capitalism that they're doing with the stadiums, if that's a word. Well, hey, I, I think why not? I you mean, uh, makes sense. It makes sense to me. Yeah, you're exactly right. But I think, um, you know, it, the, whether it's um, I know the prior caller mentioned Kathy Hochul's husband benefiting financially, and that's certainly a problem. But even right. if it's not a family member benefiting financially, the taxpayers are still getting screwed. It, even if it's only um, if, if it's nobody's family member that's benefiting, even if it's just the owner of the team that's benefiting, when the taxpayers are on the hook for hundreds of hundreds of millions of dollars, and it's going into the owner's pocket essentially, that's not right either. Even if there's no nepotism hook, absolutely. And and if you know they let all New Yorkers or all residents of Buffalo County, whatever. They let him in, you know, gave him half price tickets or free tickets and gave you two, three dollar hot dogs and two, three dollar beer. Right. That's one thing. But you're not getting what are you getting for that? You're actually probably going to pay more because it's a nice stadium. Right. Right. Exactly. That's day, exactly. So what the hell do we get out e- of? Exactly. Right. You get to buy you get to pay one hundred dollars a ticket for the privilege of giving your favorite sports team hundreds of millions of dollars in taxpayer money. That's exactly that's exactly where I'm coming from. Corey, uh, thank you, and congratulations on your win at the uh, the Hard Rock. We're gonna, we, got the, we got the AC report coming up next hour. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about casino gambling and a few other things. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Let's say hello to uh, Mike in New Rochelle. Hello, Mike. Hey, good morning, Frank. Morning. Uh, two topics. Uh, I want to speak on the pizza box and uh, the uh, darker side of midnight. Great. All right. Uh, as far as the pizza box goes, we uh, we we're told to recycle corrugated cardboard in my town. So if the pizza comes in a corrugated box, I throw out the wax paper between the pizza and the box, and that goes into the recycling bin. And if it's another box, it gets torn up and thrown out regular garbage. On the darker <laughs> side of midnight, those guys are hilarious. You got Matt Blaze, who's like the voice of reason, who tries to it makes sense out of everything. Matt Blaze is the voice of reason. To me, he is. Matt Blaze has ne- hasn't been called the voice of reason in his life. Wow. He rationalizes everything that you do. Jeez. And you got Alex Barnard is most entertaining when he's very irritated. So, which I think is pretty often. He seems irritated a good deal of the time. Yeah, but that, that's that's the charm of the show. And then you got. Kenny, who's like the Bob Mitchum of the bunch, and you, you mix that salad together, and you got some extra entertainment. It's like an extension of the other side of midnight. What? They, so it sounds like you're giving it a, a strong recommendation. Oh, absolutely! I, I can't wait for them to come on. I, I'm, I'm always, you know, flicking the cursor until it comes up on the what, podcast. What makes um, what? You know, when you say Bob Mitchum, you're talking about Robert Mitchum, the actor, right? Yes. What makes Kenneth the Bob Mitchum of the bunch? He's got that laid back, baby, I don't care style, you know, and it's just like, it's, you know, it, it just melts in your ears. You, you love hearing his take on things, you know? Yeah, it melts in your ears. Uh, like yeah, those... I, I, like the way, I like the way they describe the behind the scenes on what it takes to keep your show on the air. That's right. That's right. Some days uh, they're more successful than others. All right, Mike, that's a very thorough review. I appreciate that. If I may say, Frank, when you when you go on these trips like to Mexico and you come back, you tell me all the wonderful things that that took place. I don't care about that. I want to hear about all the miserable things you took that took place with you. That's more interesting to me. So take it for what it is. 
but the other, the darker side of midnight is great, and I hope it lasts for as long as your show does. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. I, I don't think I've ever been accused of a lack of complaining about the mundane things that are happening in in my life. So uh, I uh, I tell you what happens, you know, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, and uh, you draw your own conclusions. John is in Garden City. Hello, John. Hey, Frank. You know, in this topic about uh, stadiums and funding and so forth, the reality is this, is that it's assets versus liabilities. Billionaires are operators. They can put things together. They create revenue. They create value. When it comes to a situation like, you know, regarding that gentleman who's got the insulin problem, and unfortunately, it's sad for him, but that's a liability to, to, to state. It's a liability. Unfortunately, it's a person's life, but it is a liability, and it it's, doesn't create any kind of revenue base on, on the back end. So that's, what, that's the reality. I, I live here in Garden City. They're trying to build uh, some kind of casino at the old National Coliseum. And I'm getting these phone calls for these type of uh, surveys and so forth, which are very funny how they're loaded. But that's all asset-based. Billionaires put together these, these deals together, creating hotels, casinos, and so forth. It's asset-based. That's what it comes down to, and revenue and value. That's the bottom line. Well, uh, so, uh, John, I, I, I mean, I think I thought what you're saying, but so it sounds like you're okay with the taxpayer subsidies of, of big stadiums. It sucks, unfortunately, but it does create some value in the in the community. And the billionaires, you know, it, they're the ones who are able to put these things together. They're the, the brilliancy behind it. Even like tax codes. Tax codes, the government is not good, not efficient at creating anything. So they give the, the benefits of business people to create businesses and real estate development and all the benefits because, you know, they can't do it. They're, they're inefficient. They're just you know, loaded with paperwork. So the billion people, the billionaires as well as wealthy people are the ones who can manage and put these ideas together as opposed to the government doing it. It's uh, the nature of the beast, unfortunately. Well, well thank so you. Uh, thank you, John. You know, that's my point. That's my problem. In some ways, it's the military industrial complex all over again, right? Because it all comes down to money. And, you know, the, the, the old twist on the golden rule, they say those with the gold makes the rules. So what we see in the field of international affairs is private sector businesses, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, so on and so forth, they make billions. So then they spend millions on campaign contributions, lobbying, whatever else. And then their reward is the U.S. taxpayer pays them billions. So they make money from the taxpayer through things like the war in Ukraine and all sorts of other things. And then they spend a little bit of that money buying off politicians and romancing politicians. And look, I think a lot of the politicians that vote for things like the war in Ukraine or, uh, you know, an increase in defense spending for this group or that, I think they really do have the best of intentions very, very often. But the fact that though or, or, you know, if you don't want to look, I know I always get in trouble, not in trouble, but I always know uh, it's people see red whenever I mention Ukraine. So let me leave Ukraine out. Casino gambling, what we were just talking about. Perfect example. So New York has just voted to legalize casino gambling. They're trying to get a casino up in the Bronx right now, right near the uh, Trump golf course up there. 
And magically, Bally's is trying to build it. And I like Bally's. You know, it's a fun property, great place to uh, play in Atlantic City. I visited the Bally's in Vegas, too, although that's owned by a separate company. But it's a separate discussion. So the Bally's folks, I guarantee you, every politician that represents this area in the Bronx is going to see every single campaign committee they have well-funded by Bally's. Additionally, they're going to get a lot of nice dinners and lunches courtesy of Bally's lobbyists. And look, I have friends that are lobbyists, close friends, and this is just what they do. And those politicians in the Bronx, for the most part, will become very fervent advocates for Bally's getting a casino. So whether it's casino, whether it's a stadium, whether it's a war, the people that stand to benefit financially, and there are many. You know who did a very good podcast on this? Glenn Greenwald. He has a podcast called System Update, which you could watch, and he gets into a war profiteering. But it goes beyond war. It's casinos, it's sports stadiums, people that get super rich because of the government, they spend a little bit of that money buying off politicians, and they continue getting super rich through the taxpayer. And it's a rotten system. And something that uh, I've explored alternatives to, and I refuse to accept that that's just the way it is and will always be. I think we should try and look at ways to change it, whether it's democracy vouchers or something else, right? Maybe that's not the solution. Maybe something else is. But we have a system of legalized bribery in this country. And it's working out well for the people it's working out well for. And I don't think it's working out well for the taxpayers and people that have to live here. Uh, 800-848-9222. We'll continue with your calls in a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Danielle Hoffman, because other people have to wait weeks or months for their birthday bumper music requests. Somehow, Danielle is getting all her picks in on her actual birthday. Clearly, uh, she must have worked out something uh, behind the scenes with um, with Matt Blaze. Uh, this is U2, sweetest thing. 800-848-9222. I'm going to get back to your calls in a moment. Well, it took us two days. We started this on Valentine's Day. But my wife and I saw a feature film. Now, we, um, we looked at different romantic films to 
C, but we're creeping up on the Academy Awards, and neither of us have seen many of the films. I think the only one that we've seen is uh, is the Top Gun sequel. And we'd like to at least see, you know, I like to watch the Academy Awards. I know nobody else does these days. Clearly the audience is dwindling each year. I'm going to be the last guy watching the Academy Awards. They will be doing the show just for me at the rate we're going. But um, there, so I'm trying to see as many of the nominees as possible. So... One of the films that got a a number of nominations, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor, Best Supporting Actress, Best Original Screenplay. One of the films that got a number of nominations was a film called The Banshees of Inisharan or Inisharan. And it's very interesting. I saw the trailer, um, I saw a clip from it, and it didn't exactly wow me. It has Colin Farrell on it. In it, he's one of the stars, and Brendan Gleeson is one of the stars. And uh, Brendan Gleeson has a very interesting look to him. The only thing that I remember seeing Brendan Gleeson in was the Comey Rule, where he played Donald Trump, and I thought he did a good job playing Donald Trump. A little over the top, but it's clear that that was the narrative of that show, the Comey Rule. They wanted Trump to be this almost comic book like. evil, villainous figure. And I get it. And that's the way Brendan Gleeson played it. But I thought he he came across to me as a good actor. And then I see uh, that CBS Sunday Morning does this profile on the two stars of the film, Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson. And apparently they're friends in real life. They're very good friends. And in this film, I don't want to give too much away, but they play friends in the film as well. Here uh, is, uh, this is, I'm not sure if it was last week or the previous week, CBS Sunday Morning, Colin Farrell talking about his friendship with Brendan Gleeson. I'm curious with the process. Did you have a discussion about maybe we shouldn't speak to each other throughout this film? We touched on it. I was a bit nervous about that. Why? Just because I love the man and I was nervous about, Jesus, are we going to have to give each other space? And then when we saw each other for the first time in a couple of years to start this, we just said, do you need a bit of, are we going to do a little, you know, uh, and we looked at each other and we went, ah, no, don't need it. (laughs) There's some hostility between the two characters in the film. So I was curious how this film was going to go because sometimes it's described as a drama. And in fact, if you pull it up online on streaming, which we did, it was described drama. Other times it's described as dark comedy. Okay. Um, If you look it up online, it's described as a black tragicomedy. So I don't know about you, but I had no idea what a tragicomedy is. Maybe that's my own ignorance. So I go and look up what is a tragicomedy. A tragicomedy is a literary genre that blends aspects of both tragic and comic forms most often seen in dramatic literature. The term can describe either a tragic play, which contains enough comic elements to lighten the overall mood, or a serious play with a happy ending. So a black tragic comedy. So we end up watching this film, The Banshees of Inisharan, over two days. And it was very well done. Very well made. It's uh, It takes place in Ireland in 1923. And it's the landscapes are just gorgeous. It's beautifully shot. The locations they use are great. The music is very fitting for the mood. 
the acting performances by by the two main stars and the leading female star and some of the other supporting roles are magnificent. It's wonderfully edited. The story is pretty good. Uh, I will say it was a pretty good story. However, and and there are moments that are quite funny. However, my wife and I had the same view of the film after we uh, after we watched it, which is we both found it pretty depressing. I mean, one aspect of the film after another. It's depressing. Now, I'm sure there's a lot of allegories for different things, and I'm sure there's hidden meanings in this film that I'm missing, but I would not watch this film again. As great as it was in terms of it being well-made, it was so depressing. If you are looking for a feel-good movie, if you're looking for a film like uh, Singing in the Rain to lift your spirits... This is not it. Uh, here's the trailer for the Banshees of Inna Sharon. If I've done something to you, just tell me what I've done to you. I just don't like you no more. Have you been rowing? Have you been rowing? Have we been rowing? Well, you are rowing. It does look like we're rowing. Just stop being friends with a fella. He's dull, Siobhan. But he's always been dull. Maybe this whole thing has just been about getting you to stand up for yourself. How are you, fatty? Not so much your dog, is it? What did you come here for? I just came to kick your door and give you a slagging. Why aren't you talking to Barry no more? That wouldn't be a sin, though, would it, Father? No, but it's not very nice either, is it? What I've decided to do is this. I have a set of shears at home, and each time you bother me, I'll take one of my fingers off with them. Starting from now. But shush like, Polly. You know, shush like. Yeah, I'd shush like. It's about one boring man leaving another man alone. One boring man. You're all boring. Let's just call it quits. We won't call it quits. We'll call it the start. The um, the only comment uh, other than the kind of depressing nature of it, the only negative comment that I would have, because it was very well done, it's a very good film, even though I don't want to watch it again, is that at times, you know, it does take place in 1923 Ireland. So at times, the Irish brogue of so many of the characters is a little bit like the, uh, the film uh, Belfast. Which I saw last year, which I uh, which I enjoyed, but I had a same I had the same problem with that film a little bit, in that it was very difficult to hear at times to to understand what they were saying. So you almost kind of uh, there was one point where I rewound the dialogue a couple times because I couldn't make out what they were saying, and I just had to put on the subtitles. At some point, you know, we turned it off because it it's annoying. I think to look at those subtitles on the screen, but it was uh, a little a little bit difficult to make out what they're saying at times. So, but it was well done. It's uh, nominated for a ton of awards. So, if you're going to watch the Oscars, uh, maybe that's a film that you want to see. But just be warned, it's not exactly a, a film that's going to put you in an upbeat mood. At least not for us. 
800-848-9222. That's uh, 1-800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Alex in Brooklyn, who's been patiently holding. Hello, Alex. Yeah, hi. I have a point to make about what you said about the governor giving money to teams, that these teams are threatening to leave the city, and it looks like they acted upon their threat in the past. What is the governor supposed to do? She doesn't want this team to leave the city. The whole city loses a status symbol by the Buffalo Bills. They're not the Buffalo Bills anymore. It, it's something that puts down the whole city. It changes everything. What's she supposed to do? What? Even though it's wrong, maybe the taxpayers should get their money back, whatever you want to say, but what is she going to do? Alex, that is such a good point, right? Because in some, in some respect, so if Buffalo won't give the Bills a new stadium or if Dallas won't give the Cowboys a new stadium, then, or, then more teams will do what the Supersonics have done and move elsewhere. So what we have essentially created is a national race to the bottom where we're incentivizing cities to just be willing to give more and more taxpayer money away. So what do you do? I don't know, uh, is the answer. I I would love to see some sort of, um, I don't know, uh, maybe some sort of uh, federal regulation in um, in terms of limiting the percentage of a stadium cost that could be paid for by the local government. Uh, or uh, So I'd like to see maybe something like that. But even aside from that, if I'm the governor, even though this is not a politically popular thing, it's maybe that's why I'm not a politician, and thanks for the call, Alex. If I'm the governor, what I'm doing is saying, no, I'm not giving you a billion dollars of taxpayer money when New Yorkers are already taxed to the max, New Yorkers are moving out of here because they can't afford to live here. I'm not giving you a billion dollars so that you can make tens of billions. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. You want to leave and you want to turn your backs on the fans that made your franchise. Hasta la vista. 800-848-9222. Joel is in Manhattan. Hello, Joel. Hi, Frank. I wanted to uh, bring back the conversation about the darker side of midnight. I'd be my guest. Okay, great. Okay, so anyway, um, here's my take. It's uh, it's it's <laughs> you got a great cast of uh, of people working at your production, and they actually put on a pretty darn good uh, uh, podcast. I would say I'm I'm not quite the same, you know, genre. But it is kind of like watching uh, a Seth Rogen or Jonah Hill film. Uh, not maybe quite as crass as uh, Super Bad, but uh, you know it, it's it's uh, it's funny, and there's moments that are kind of like nice commentary about what's what's gone on from the uh, the past show of the day. And I don't know. I I kind of enjoy it. I don't know why, but it's it's a kind of a ramble thing. Well, it sounds, it sounds, hey, you so far in terms of positive reviews, it's two for two. So, uh, I, uh, look, it's clearly they're doing something right. Yeah. And, and what, what's great too is you really get the personalities too. I mean, they're, I, I don't, I don't get the feeling like, oh, they're holding back or they're putting on some kind of persona or something like that. None of that. It's, you get the real, real McCoy, so to speak. Wonderful. You know, wonderful. So, um, yeah, recommend it. If you you have to be willing to accept uh, a few exploits here and there or whatever, but 
it goes into territory. Let's just say that. All right. That's uh, two positive reviews for The Darker Side of Midnight so far. If you want to check it out, you can go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com or just search The Darker Side of Midnight on any podcast app. Hey, uh, before we continue with your calls, I did want to mention this. Page six in the uh, New York Post has an interesting article about Selena Gomez, who I'm now a fan of. And uh, she reveals, you know, she worked for Disney for a time. She was uh, a Disney kid before becoming a a big star. So she revealed to Vanity Fair. Okay, I didn't mean to credit page six. Vanity Fair in their uh, Wednesday issue that Disney explicitly told her when she was under contract for Disney with Disney, they explicitly told her not to say the phrase, what the hell? So she tells that Vanity Fair, I wasn't a wild child by any means, but I was on Disney, so I had to make sure not to say what the hell in front of anyone. And uh, she goes on to say that. She explained that she was putting pressure on herself to be the best role model she could while starring on the Wizards of Waverly Place as Alex Russo from 2007 to 2012. Now I think being the best role model is being honest, even with the ugly and complicated parts of yourself. She also clarified in the interview that after candidly describing her mental health journey in the Apple TV documentary that I told you about, My Mind and Me, she's no longer haunted by the idea that people would always associate her with Disney. I definitely feel free of it. Sometimes I get triggered. It's not that I'm ashamed of my past. It's just that I've worked so hard to find my own way. I don't want to be who I was. I want to be who I am. Well, I think that's a very healthy attitude. You know, I have noticed, and I asked Shatner about this in our Q&A after the show on Saturday. It's so, when you achieve a great deal of success at a young age, as Shatner did, as Orson Welles did, as uh, Selena Gomez did, it can be so difficult to outrun that, you know. Um, you know, we discussed the. I discussed this a little bit with Nicholas Meyer, you know, recently about w- whether he gets bothered by the fact that people are still asking him about Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan forty years later. And his answer, I thought, was right on the money, which is he said he said it would bother him if he didn't get asked about anything else. But he does a lot. I think a lot of people are. I find that challenging when you achieve that degree of success at uh, at such a, a young age. And uh, look, I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to be a good role model, whether it's imposed by Disney or someone else. You know, uh, what the hell is not a bad term to use, right? I mean, you know, I guess if you could say what the heck instead, that's probably a probably a better thing, especially if your fan base is uh, is children. Right. But. Uh, so that's the, the latest from Selena Gomez World. 800-848-9222. That's uh, 800-848-9222. Gino is in Brooklyn. Hello, Gino. Hey, I'm going to rant about corporate welfare. All right. Be my guest. <laughs> um, it drives, as, as a non-sports fan, it really drives me crazy because not only are we subsidizing teams, but now we're subsidizing teams that aren't even here, New York, New Jersey Giants, right. Jersey right. Jets. We shouldn't even be calling them the New York team, right? But they we, we they kind of piggyback on our, our tax base too. We buy we build them billion dollar stadiums, and you think about it, they're only using it eight days a year. They don't even like cross use it with other stadiums, right? With other events, and this comes back to something that you may not so be so fond of: 
all boys in, in the Coney Island area, right? That stadium was built and subsidized and still is with tax incentives and, and utility incentives. And they don't use that stadium a fraction of the time. That's, that, that season is only two months long and they're on the road half, the, half that time. Well, and a half it's, a, it's a little it's – it's longer now that it's a longer season. But um, but yeah, even if it's five months, that's uh, it's still you know I, your point's well taken. Now they do use these stadiums for other things like concerts and so forth. But so what, right? I they mean, used to. It, they used to. They don't do it in, in Brooklyn anymore. They don't do it in Brooklyn. Well, no, but I'm just talking they, about they all these the stadiums concert. around the country, right? But so what? And who who cares, right? I mean, it's not as if you're using it for a real public purpose, you're using this for uh, to make someone who's uh, made a lot of campaign contributions, who's already rich, you're using the taxpayer investment to make them even richer. And that's precisely why I care. I care a whole lot why they do that. And, if the t- you know, it's a private business. If Buffalo wants to pull out of the city because it's on the verge of welfare, then so be it. If Buffalo can see, you know, bluer skies in Florida or wherever right. the market forces want them to go, let them go. Right. I mean, it's unfortunate, but the city would collapse just like Cleveland would collapse if you pull the professional teams out of it. So well, well, but then the so it seems like welfare. you're kind of defeating your own point there, uh, Gino. And I agree with you, I think, on the broader point. But you're saying that, uh, okay, well, if they let these teams leave, then the city would collapse. Well, if you're a politician or a governor or a mayor in one of these towns, you don't want your city to collapse. So doesn't it behoove you to make the public investment then? Well, not, you, you did little incentives. You could do little things without, like, selling, you know, giving away the bank. Like when you look at and, and of course the, the stadiums dead for Gazy too because you look at their balance sheets they pull out the concessions from the profits they pull out the parking revenue from the profits so they're just saying oh we got this billion dollar property and we need help but they're not incorporating the marketing all the merchandising all you know the monster the mammoth machine that these sports teams are you know the Yankees are the second most popular franchise on the planet. Well, maybe third behind, you know, Manchester United as well. And I think I'm had to be second right now. But and again, when they were when they were complaining to pull out of the Bronx, how many Yankee fans were, compl- were saying, "Good, you know, nobody goes to the Bronx. The Bronx is you know imploding as as we speak, right? It's not the Yankees that are keeping the Bronx uh, afloat. The Yank- you know, the, the Bronx is only years from complete you know implosion. But if they want to leave, let them leave. But well, I don't. We don't have to get in bed with them either, because they cry and they fudge the books, and, and they, you know they they pitch an argument that's not even accurate. Gino, and then we, we I, I, I have them. to run. Thank you. Yeah, I I, uh, I tend to agree with the broader point of uh, stadium investment, right? I mean, if we're going to have capitalism, let's have capitalism. Let's not have capitalism only when it works for rich people, uh, and socialism when it comes to making them even richer. Right? It's it's a backwards proposition. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Uh, Coming up next hour, uh, we have the AC Report. We're going to talk with Michael Traeger from Travel Zork, who is just uh, terrific. Hey, you know, I was talking about David from the Bronx's insulin before. You know, we have a cat that's diabetic. We have one with, um, Luke, with cancer and another one that's diabetic. And so Melchizedek, who's diabetic, we give him his insulin when he's eating. He has to take it when he's eating. And uh, I was feeding the cats while my wife was giving uh, our son a bath last night. And sure enough, I put out three bowls. For the three cats, I take the, we have a special diabetic cat food, and I scoop out three containers. uh, I scoop out enough for each of the three bowls. Melchizedek won't eat any of it, won't touch it. He goes, puts his hand in, takes a lick, and walks away. So I couldn't give him his insulin. So uh, my wife comes out of the bathtub, out of the bathroom where, you know, she's giving Carmine the bath. And she says, uh, you know, did you give Melky his insulin? I said, no, he wouldn't eat. Couldn't give him his insulin. And she said, it's so funny. He wouldn't eat this morning either. He's no longer eating the diabetic food. My wife has other cat food that she keeps for the outdoor cats. It's basically regular cat food. But he's supposed to be eating the specific diabetic cat food. So hopefully tomorrow, today... He's hungry enough where he'll eat the diabetic cat food because we're not going to keep giving him the regular cat food because uh, that's not good for him either. But neither is not getting his insulin. So that's what we're dealing with on the cat front. That's our latest drama. Until next hour, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. kind of a day. The good news is, in the last 24 hours, at least as far as we know, we have not shot down any UFOs. Good morrow, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. We have not, repeat, not shot down any UFOs in the last 24 hours at a cost of $400,000 per Sidewinder missile. I am still just, I mean, what a price tag on those missiles. The bad news is we still have no explanation whatsoever as to what the last three objects that we did shoot down are. We're told they're not balloons. We're told they're not Chinese. We're told they're not aliens. We have no idea what they are. Uh, One of the more interesting suggestions I heard is that they're a piece of promotional material that that got loose from a used car lot. Now, that sounds a lot different from the flying octagon that it was initially reported as. So in a matter, just think about this, and I'm not going to spend too much time on this unless you want to call in with your own conjecture and your own comments, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. In a matter of eight days, U.S. fighter jets have shot down four objects across North America. The first was the highly publicized 
downing of this purported Chinese spy balloon, which the Chinese claim was a weather balloon, that was downed off the coast of South Carolina. But in the wake of the fiasco over that balloon, NORAD went into heightened alert. As a result, NORAD began spotting more unknown objects in the sky and in three instances shot them down at substantial cost to the taxpayer. The first was a flying object brought down over um, the remote over remote northern Alaska coast on Friday. The White House Security Council spokesman John Kirby said the object was flying at about 40,000 feet and was a threat to civilian flights. He described the object as being the size of a small car. Second object was shot down over Canada's Yukon Territory and was described as a balloon similar to, but significantly smaller than, the one taken out off the coast of South Carolina. It was initially reported as cylindrical and an airship. Sounds a lot like a flying saucer. But in a memo to lawmakers, the unidentified object was ultimately described as a, quote, small metallic balloon with a tethered payload below it. Then on Saturday, an object was detected on radar over Montana, and again on Sunday, hovering over the upper peninsula of Michigan as it moved over Lake Michigan. U.S. and Canadian authorities restricted airspace over the lake and deployed planes to identify it. A senior administration official said the object was octagonal. Octagonal. And had strings hanging off, but no discernible payload. It was flying at about 20,000 feet before two F-16 fighter jets shot it down. The first missile fired by one of the jets did not detect the airborne object. It lost track of the target and missed a detail that was initially omitted by the Pentagon and first reported by uh, the Fox News Channel. The missile, an AIM-9X Sidewinder, that costs about $439,000, fell into Lake Michigan. So there's all this mystery. There are all these questions that have surrounded the three sightings and shootings. And we've seen officials from the Biden administration and the Pentagon hesitating for days to explain what the objects were. This has only raised speculation that they could be anything from more spy balloons, we've heard that, to alien aircraft, we've heard that. Late Tuesday, the Biden administration said the three unidentified objects served commercial purposes and were not related to espionage. Crews are still trying to recover debris from all three of these objects. General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, said two were in extremely remote areas while the object shot down over Lake Huron is now under 200 feet of water. Meanwhile, the story that started the brouhaha over the incursions in the sky is also changing. On Tuesday, the Washington Post published an exclusive report citing multiple administration officials saying the Chinese balloon shifted course abruptly over the Pacific as a cold front moved in, and analysts are now examining the possibility its flight over the continental United States might have been intentional. Might not have been intentional, excuse me. That possibility would corroborate, at least in part, China's claim 
that the entire incident could have been an accident. So while events of the last week have created a perception of a sudden glut of new things in the sky, there's very likely a more benign explanation. After the incursion of the Chinese balloon, NORAD adjusted its radar system to make its system more sensitive to smaller and slower-moving aircraft. This has sharply increased the number of objects it's detecting, which in turn increased the number of military responses. So I don't know about you, but I find this whole thing very puzzling. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Here is the audio of one of the fighter pilots over Lake Huron describing the object that they shot down. Personally, I think it's odd that we don't have a clear explanation yet. There are benign explanations for a lot of the story, but there is no explanation for why we are shooting these things down. If the president wants to end this hysteria, some transparency would help. So we should have far more information than we do at this point. It has been nearly a week since the first of these objects was shot down over Alaska. And still, as far as we know, the government hasn't even reached the debris yet. And there are obvious problems with shooting down something before you know what it is. And there are even more issues with using half a million dollar missiles funded by the taxpayers to blow things out of the sky and then not telling us what they are. So, I don't know. Some folks are saying that whatever we've taken down in the last week is some combination of domestic research vehicles and foreign spyware. Um, Isaac Saul, in his Tangle newsletter, which is quite good, he wrote uh, that uh, I think Holman Jenkins is on to something when he notes that the government believes we can't handle the truth, not about aliens, but about how chock full of foreign or unknown flying objects our skies are. Still, I do not trust the government line on this topic. And I think there's a lot more going on than meets the eye. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This explanation that we're suddenly finding these car-sized objects in the sky because we've adjusted our radars is straightforward enough. It's also ridiculous. Did we not think these were important enough to look for before? I mean, think. Let's pretend everything we're being told is true. Okay? So... We're now we're being told that they adjusted the radar so that they could see more of these objects floating around in the sky. These more of these slow moving objects. Okay. Oh, these slow moving objects are so troubling. The octagon, the metal metallic balloon that we've got to shoot them down at four hundred thousand dollars a missile. But a week ago. These things were benign and harmless enough that we didn't even have to adjust our radar capability to find them. I mean, think about that. Think, Think of the dichotomy in what the Pentagon 
is saying about this. A week ago, these were so unimportant, we didn't even have to adjust our radar to look for them. Now, we have to shoot them down at $400,000 a missile. It's bonkers. Didn't we think these were important enough to look for before? What car-sized object is flying above Lake Michigan at 20,000 feet, totally unbeknownst to NORAD? How many are there? And if we don't think they pose any meaningful threat, why, apologies to Selena Gomez and Disney, why the hell are we blowing them up? Now, I want to be very clear. I don't know anything about aviation. I don't know anything about the military. This is not my area of expertise. But it has piqued my interest like nothing else. You don't have to watch a lot of Star Trek, which I certainly do, in order to understand uh, that um, there are possibilities of other things out there. The government has handled this subject, the UFO subject, for 60 years with an enormous amount of secrecy. Many corners of the military and our spy agencies They're totally inaccessible to most of us. And the engaging and startling things about this fiasco is just how plainly we can now see that. Sure, there are a few people who know what we shot down and why we shot them down. But for now, those of us normal folks, even journalists, we're left scouring over anonymous sources and contradictory accounts. If President Biden wants to stem the hysteria, which he should, the best course of action is a straightforward briefing on what we saw, why we suddenly saw so many of them in such a short period of time, and what factors were weighed when we decided to shoot these things down. The longer this little dance goes on, the crazier the theories will get and the less clarity we'll ever have. I can't tell you how many people have written to me in the last week saying they don't think there were objects, that they think this was just a a safe phasing, a face saving measure by the Biden administration. I don't agree with that. I think we shot something down. But what is it? Why did we shoot it down? What does the government know? Just close it. I'm so sick of being treated like a five year old that can't be told the truth about the Easter Bunny. It's absurd. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on this or anything else we've covered. That's uh, 800-848-9222. Leo is on the Upper West Side. Hello, Leo. Hello, Frank. How are you doing? Good, thanks. My voice is a little bit bit bad today. Uh, I wanted to ask you one thing. I was was answering a question why you took from the interview the napkin of William Shatner. And my kind of explanation was that if during your lifetime uh, the technology, the scientists going to have technology to recreate a human, you would have the DNA of William Shatner and be able to recreate him. Is I am I far off? No, I mean, look, I mean, mostly it was just. Um, I would say it was forty percent a joke. 
um, you know, 30% wanting a physical memento of our uh, meeting because I don't know if I'm ever going to see him again. And then, yeah, I'm going to say in 15 to 20% would like the ability to clone William Shatner if I ever have those means at my disposal. Yeah. My dear Frank Morello. So thank you for the call there, uh, Leo. Appreciate it. 800-848-9222. Bob is in Westchester. Hello, Bob. Good morning, Frank. Morning. Um, we're never going to get the truth from this moron in the White House. He, he's hiding the truth because he knows an embarrassment that our defense and alertness is, is obsolete from the Chinese. The Chinese are testing us. That's what they're doing. And it's sad because one of these days, the Chinese are, are going to unleash a weather balloon that's going to have terrible consequences. That's why we have no choice to shoot them down. But also, as far as aliens go, there's no aliens involved in this because you think they're, they're going to be tra- they're traveling thousands and thousands of miles from their planet to come here. Do you think they're going to be flying rubber balloons? Come on. Well, uh, we don't know, Bob. That's what's so troubling about this. Thank you. 800-848-9222. One other thing I did want to mention before uh, we ran out of time is uh, we lost a real icon yesterday with uh, the passing of uh, Raquel Welch at the age of uh, 82. Uh, Raquel Welch was somebody that um, I have been a fan of Forever, quite frankly. She was, look, I I know she didn't really appreciate the fact that she was viewed this way because she was a deep thinker and a very talented actress. You know, in some ways, she was kind of like the Pamela Anderson of the 1960s, but uh, she was a one of the biggest sex symbols of the 20th century, right? In the 60s, you had Raquel Welch. In the 70s, you had Farrah Fawcett. And she was a real beauty. She was, you know, when Playboy named the 100 sexiest female stars of the 20th century, she came in, Raquel Welch came in third after Marilyn Monroe and Jane Mansfield. And and that became so much a part of her identity. And um, I I don't know that there's a cause of death. The last couple of times I saw her, pictured um and she hadn't done much in the last couple of years in the public eye but she didn't look healthy she her real success and her ubiquity as a sex symbol kind of began with both the film one million years bc which is kind of a silly film but it's great to see raquel welch run around in kind of that prehistoric style bikini that she's wearing. I mean, Princess Leia's gold bikini has nothing on Raquel Welch the way that she looked in that bikini. But even more so than the film, the poster of her in that film became one of the most enduring American images over the course of the last 60 years. Those of you that have seen the film Shawshank Redemption, that was the poster that was on Andy Dufresne's wall. And it was on a lot of walls in prisons and in the bedrooms of 14-year-old boys all around the country. So that poster of this cave woman in this rocky prehistoric landscape wearing this tattered bikini uh, 
grabbed the spotlight, and she was famous from the time that she was 26 years old. And, you know, she did benefit, and I think the Times alluded to this in their obituary of her, she benefited from the fact that Marilyn Monroe died just four years before that picture came out. And America and the film industry needed a new goddess. And Raquel Welch filled that role. So um, the critics were very unkind to her. Throughout her career, uh, she was admired more for how she looked than for how her... uh, than for her acting ability. She called her book in 2010, her memoir, Beyond the Cleavage. And you kind of got the message that there was a lot more to her than just how she looked. And in spite of a career largely based on sex appeal, she refused to appear nude. She wrote in her book, quote, personally, I always hated feeling so exposed and vulnerable. So uh, she was in a great film that I really enjoyed called The uh, Fantastic Voyage. You've seen Fantastic Voyage, right? A terrific scene where she's being attacked by antibodies. Open it before they get here. I can't till the hatch is flooded. (laughs) So uh, obviously those of us that are fans of the television show Seinfeld... Can't forget the <laughs> very funny episode that she's in where she's part of the Broadway cast of Scarsdale Surprise and they have to fire her because she doesn't move her arms enough. And then this leads to a cat fight with Elaine Venice. I don't move my arms when I dance. That's my signature. <laughs> Would you just keep an eye out for this woman? She's about... I don't know, yay high, and uh, she doesn't swing her arms when she walks. What do you mean? Like this. <laughs> what the hell is that? Are you making fun of my dancing? <gasps> Aren't you Raquel Welch? You know who I am. Now, what are you doing? Uh, n- nothing. I just wasn't moving my arms. <laughs> That's it. You're going down. <laughs> <laughs> So she was in a lot of films over the years, and uh, some of her most memorable roles were were kind of small ones. But um, she was seems like a great person, and seems like somebody that had a very tough time outrunning her reputation as a uh, as a sex symbol. She talked about it in an interview back in 1986 with. I think of myself as a woman who one of the things that I have to uh, play with is my sexuality and um, I like it and uh, I've never made too many bones about it although sometimes it's been uncomfortable but most of the time it served me very well. She was married and divorced four times and a lot of people even fans of Raquel Welch they never really viewed her as a Latina actress, but she embraced that aspect of her identity, particularly later in her career. She was in a PBS series as a Mexican-American aunt on an American uh, American family, and her last film was about six years ago. It was How to Be a Latin Lover, 
a, a comic drama about an aging gigolo. I didn't see the film, but she got pretty good reviews. Uh, she was a um, she played the grandmother of uh, of the main character. So um, in her late seventies, she was still followed by paparazzi everywhere. And reporters will still commenting on her appearance. And uh, it's uh, so sorry to see her go. Uh, with her passing is a part of Americana moving on. So, you know, there's one thing that I will mention. This was pointed out to me by a listener. He emailed me. The New York Times obituary that was initially posted around 2 p.m. yesterday, said this. This is from the New York Times. The critics were often unkind. Throughout her career, Ms. Welch was publicly admired more for her anatomy than for her dramatic abilities. She even called her 2010 book a memoir come self-help guide beyond the cleavage. cleavage." Now, that word, a memoir come self-help guide, it's like magna cum laude. It's, uh, you know, it's Latin. Right. I mean, it's used. It's a C-U-M. Right. It's used in a lot of different uh, a lot of different contexts. And the Latin word, um, it's a preposition meaning with it's Latin for with. So that was at. But it also that spelling of that Latin word. It also has a sexual connotation. I won't get into it, but you know what it means. Then as of 10 p.m., This is what the New York Times obituary said. The critics were often unkind. Throughout her career, Ms. Welch was publicly admired more for her anatomy than for her dramatic abilities. She even called her 2010 book a memoir and self-help guide beyond the cleavage. So the New York Times edited their own article between 2 p.m. and 10 p.m to get rid of that Latin word, which is the same as a sexual term. Isn't that interesting? Now, changes might have been for cosmetic reasons. Maybe the New York Times style book doesn't like using Latin prepositions. But I suspect for all this talk of Raquel Welch and sexiness, they recognized the similarity to that Latin word and the sexual word, and they omitted it and replaced it with the word end. So I thought that was interesting. And thank you to that listener, uh, Tom, that uh, pointed that out. 800-848-9222, the AC Report with Michael Traeger. Straight ahead. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is the AC Report.
Well, they blew up the chicken man in Philly last night. And they blew up his house, too. Down on the boardwalk, they're ready for a fight. Gonna see what them racket boys can do. Now there's trouble busting in from out of state. And the DA can't get no relief. Gonna be a rumble on the promenade. And the gambling commissioner's hanging on by the skin of his teeth. Everything dies, baby, that's a fact. But maybe everything that dies, someday he comes back. Put your makeup on, fish your hair up pretty. And meet me tonight in Atlantic City. Time for our weekly look at the 48 most interesting blocks in the world and everything that's contained within them. Nobody I enjoy talking about uh, gambling and gambling-related travel with than Michael Traeger. He is a luxury travel and casino gaming industry entrepreneur, and he is with a terrific website called TravelZork.com. Also, there's a great podcast called The ZorkCast, which I've been on from time to time. Nobody knows more about uh, casino gambling and associated travel than uh, Michael Traeger does. Michael, it's great to talk with you again. Thanks for getting up early. Thanks. It's great to be on. How are you doing this morning? Hanging in there, Michael. Where do we find you uh, these days? Where are you today? I am in Charlotte, North Carolina. All right. Well, um, I think this might be the first time that we've spoken since uh, we've been airing on uh, WCBM in Baltimore. Have you been to the Baltimore casinos, Michael? And if you have, what, what's your uh, what's your review of them? I have not been to the Baltimore casinos because I tend to gravitate towards Atlantic City. But I really do want to get to MGM Harbor because I hear... Lots of good things about that property. Yeah, I'm hoping to get there, too. Uh, it uh, sounds like a great spot. Now, as far as Atlantic City goes, the big news this week is that it looks like they're finally moving forward with a hearing on the bill to ban smoking in casinos. And I know this is something that uh, the advocates for the dealers and the wait staff have been lobbying for for a long time. People like me that enjoy occasional cigar while you're while you're playing baccarat or or craps or whatever, we're not necessarily that enthused about it, but I also understand where the staff is coming from on this. What what's your take on this, Michael? How do you think uh, this bill will fare? And if it does pass, how will that affect the gambling experience in Atlantic City? It's it's a controversial kind of subject. I mean, remember they haven't set a date for the actual vote yet, but they finally did. They did their fact finding mission hearing on Monday. I think it's inevitable that Atlantic City is going to go smoke-free. I wish there was some happy medium of making everybody happy, especially, you know, as cigar smokers. But I I just think that there's just too much political pressure and too much pressure from the non-smoking groups to to bring it, to bring the entire, all of the properties to non-smoking. Also, you've had some other recent developments like Mohegan Sun in Connecticut uh, post-COVID is now completely non-smoking indoors. And pretty much so the only place left where you have, where you still have indoor smoking for the most part, or where it's at least ubiquitous is in Nevada. 
I mean, there are a couple of little pockets. I mean, I don't know if you knew this, but like San Diego, uh, Harris, San Diego, which is tribal, they still have indoor smoking. You, you broke so, up a bit there, Michael. Ha- Harris, San Diego, what? It still has an indoor smoking. Oh, they have indoor smoking over there still. Um, yeah. Gotcha. Well, but so most of the Atlantic City properties, the, the rule is you can smoke on the casino floor, right? But it's only 25% of the casino. 25%. Okay. Um, right. So that's a, and also, I think even if they do pass the, pass non smoking, there still will be smoking rooms and suites in Atlantic City. Don't particularly quote me on that, but I think they still will have the smoking rooms. And I think that's happened at, at properties like like Mohegan Sun, where they still do have smoking rooms and suites. So you could have a private cigar party. So you go if you go to Mohegan Sun, you can't smoke uh, while you're while you're playing, but you can go to a separate smoking area. Well, I think they it's either outdoor smoking or, as far as I know, it's smoking in rooms and rooms and suites as long as it's on a designated smoking floor. Because remember, that's another unique part of Atlantic City. They still have smoking floors in the hotel. You, you know, Mike, smoking rooms. I'm having a real tough time hearing you. So I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna see if maybe we can connect by phone instead because uh, you keep breaking up and I don't want to uh, I don't want to miss uh, I don't want to miss a word here. So uh, Kenneth will try and get you uh, on the phone. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Michael Traeger. He is um, he's with uh, TravelZork.com, which is a terrific website which uh, I check regularly, and there's a terrific podcast. Cast on there that deals with all sorts of gambling-related uh, issues, casino gambling specifically. You could check it out. I've been a guest on that uh, podcast from uh, from time to time as well. And when I went to Las Vegas, and it's been about uh, about two years, Michael was the first person that I checked in with to see one where I should go, what would match my tears, uh, what the best spot to have breakfast was, and that's kind of what he does. For, for everybody through uh, TravelZork.com. Uh, it's going to be very interesting to see how Atlantic City fares with no smoking. A lot of people have compared that to uh, church without praying. Casinos and smoking, it's thought, went hand in hand. Even when New Jersey banned smoking about uh, 17 years ago, they made an exception for Atlantic City casinos precisely for that reason. And the revel, which was what the ocean was, a lot of people uh, attribute the lack of smoking to the fact that the uh, that the revel failed. Uh, Michael, I think we got you now. How are you? Good. Is that better? Uh, yeah, I, I think it is. We'll, we'll give it a shot. Now, um, th- a lot of people have been sharing photographs on social media of the the now vacant property of the Atlantic Club, which of course was also the Atlantic City Hilton, it was also the Golden Nugget uh, at uh, various times. This it's a great location, and I have a lot of great memories there. Give us the sort of the Reader's Digest version of what the history of that property was. Sure. Uh, well, I mean, the most historical, historically significant thing is that that was the, what is currently the closed Atlantic Club was the original Golden Nugget, which was a Steve Wynn property. And that was from 1980 to 87. Then it after it was the Golden Nugget, it became Valley's brand, then the Hilton. So it was referred to as the Atlantic City Hilton and then ACH, which was just a made up name of Atlantic City Hilton because they couldn't name it anything else. 
at the time, and then it became Atlantic Club. But what was really significant is that it was it was the original golden nugget in Atlantic City, which was a Steve Wynn property. And uh, how far back uh, does that go? When did it start as the golden nugget? Uh, it started as the golden nugget in 1980. 1980. So, uh, and then uh, it closed, I guess, around 2012, 2013. It's such a shame that it's been sitting there vacant over the course of the the last decade. Do you have any idea what the plans are for for that property or what some of the proposals are? Yeah, well, the current proposal is to make uh, luxury condos and a boutique hotel, which is super exciting. So basically, the 26-story South Tower is going to become a luxury condominium building with with six, approximately six condos per floor, ranging from 1,800 to 3,000 square feet. So, and it's going to be very, very chic with floor to ceiling windows, great ocean views. So it's going to be, that's pretty cool. And then they're also going to have a a smaller 330 room branded boutique hotel, which by branded, they mean, you know, it'll be some, it'll be some hotel brand, you know, like you have Marriott AC collection and things like that. So that's, it's pretty neat. And then they're, they're trying to figure out what the other amenities are, but definitely things like restaurants, food and beverage, and a health spa. But the big thing is having a very luxurious, like kind of Miami Beach feel condominium building. Well, I mean, that sounds pretty exciting. I mean, I'm sure those condos are going to be priced outside of my price range, but uh, it would be nice to have condos or something there rather than just uh, an empty ghost casino. No, absolutely. And I think. I think right now, when you look at the number of casinos in Atlantic City, I think we they probably have enough casinos in Atlantic City, you know, for the amount of business that there is. Because I think you brought this up last week on the episode. Even though the numbers are so strong for the casinos in Atlantic City, remember a lot a lot of that really great financial news is coming from sports betting and also app app betting and things like that. So you don't see the entire picture. That isn't all, that isn't like the casino numbers 10 years ago where everything was due to people actually physically coming to the casinos. A caller called in uh, last, uh, last hour and he was talking about his experience at the uh, hard rock casino down there in Florida. And he was talking about how he hit blackjack a bunch of times One of the things that I've noticed, uh, mostly with uh, digital blackjack, and I noticed this when I played at Jake's 58 out on Long Island recently, but uh, I've seen it in other places as well, is more and more of these blackjack payouts are six to five rather than three to two. One, is that just me uh, that I'm noticing that, or is that actually a trend? And two, can you explain to listeners what that means in terms of uh, a financial, uh, you know, in, uh, financial impact? Yeah, I mean, you know, six to five blackjack has a lower, a lower, a lower payout. Basically, you're paying six, uh, six units, six units for every five bet. If if that makes if that makes sense, so as opposed to three units for every uh, for every two for every two, so that's that makes a big difference in, in the house edge for blackjack, and the reason the reason why is because the house wants to make more money on the games, and it's especially prevalent in in lower table limit games because the, the house wants to make more money they want a higher house edge the house edge is more than double of regular blackjack 
and they're going to do it on usually on the low limit games like in Las Vegas now at I think it's the downtown Grand they've actually brought back one dollar six five blackjack games if you can believe it they really actually, wow. yeah yeah so they actually but you know and, and which which property is that again. That's uh, down, I'm pretty sure it's uh, downtown Grand in in Las Vegas. Wow. That they have yeah they're they're doing it as a as a promotion. Obviously, the only the only fallback there is that they changed the three two blackjack to they've changed the three two blackjack now to like fifteen dollar tables where they used to be ten dollar tables. But it's quite you're going to find a lot of six to five blackjack, which which basically pays you less when you hit a blackjack. So that's that's not good. And what's interesting is you have to pay a lot of attention in casinos, whether a table is three, two or six, five, because you could have tables right next to each other, which which have the different payouts. Like at Encore Boston Harbor mm. one night, I noticed that there was a 50, and this is 50 dollar tables. There was a 50 dollar three, two table right next to a 50 dollar six, five table. <laughs> So you actually have to read the felts and look at the payouts. But most most people who are big blackjack players pay a lot of attention to that. It's one reason, you know, one reason why I love Baccarat because nobody's nobody messes with uh, pretty much so nobody can mess with the odds at Baccarat, which is which is wonderful. Or nobody has yet. <laughs> yeah, don't give them any ideas, believe me. Hey, uh, lastly, Michael, I understand that uh, MGM is which now owns Borgata at. Uh, you know, in Atlantic City, holy, uh, they're making some changes to their tier matching program. What are they doing and why is that a big deal? Well, I mean, MGM's been doing tier matching for a long time. People have been able to match other casino programs. The most popular one was Caesars Diamond, and they've been able to match that to MGM Gold, which is sort of a very strong middle tier, which has a lot of benefits, including the M4 lounge and also no resort fees. And they just changed it that they're only matching Caesar Simon now to Pearl. But the Hyatt matches are still happening. And a lot of people don't know this, but if you have status with Hyatt or World of Hyatt, you can actually match your World of Hyatt status seamlessly online to MGM reward status, which is very, very strong. Michael, uh, we'll uh, end it there. I p- hope people check out TravelZork.com. Thank you for the time this morning. Absolutely. Thank you again. Thank you. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. I'm sorry for the uh, difficulty in hearing what Michael was uh, was saying there. But um, a, a failure in, in the testing before the show, I guess. Uh, hopefully that'll be covered in the darker side of midnight. All right. Uh, e. Frank is in Astoria. Hello, E. Frank. Yes. Uh, good morning, Frank. Uh, I just wanted to talk about the last topic that you had about the uh, government not being able to inform us about what's these objects that are flying over us. You know, I've been listening to your show for several years, and I see that you change from one point to another point. And, you know, uh, I agree with many of the things you say on your show, but I also have to tell you that the government has protocols and and they do tell the public what they want to tell them or what they have to tell them. For example, during the Obama administration, they stated quite publicly that they have to run certain space operations in the proper mode. When Obama uh, told the public that he was uh, operating an OV-101, the uh, um, Enterprise Experimental uh, Space Shuttle, uh, when they piggyback 
experimental space shuttle of our, uh, men, uh, on a 747 airplane. Uh, I, I saw what they were stating on TV. I opened my window, and I actually saw the um, 747, uh, the uh, Enterprise on top of uh, the, the, um, the 747. So I, I knew that that was already explained by the government that uh, we're going to be operating that way. And then when I saw it on TV, land, the, the 747 landing at JFK Airport, I, I, I knew that the, the government has their responsibility with the public. But when you're talking about shooting balloons that are considered uh, spy balloons uh, from China, uh, they could be, they could not be, no one knows what that is. And then actually, you know, you see something like that in front of you, and then the government doesn't tell you what that is. You have to confide in, uh, that there are reasons maybe why they don't want to tell the public why that, that happens. You have to also understand that the government has to also work with state governments, local governments. You know, there's a lot of construction. There's a lot of police cameras and uh, police shoot, uh, spot shooters and so on, and they have to consider the local government needs and though they can't mix one thing with another. So maybe, Frank, you might be a little bit uh, uninformed that, you know, the government is not going to be our enemy. They could be our our best friends, but I don't think the government would be hiding things from the public. And Well, they uh, are, though, E. Frank. They are, th- thank you, E. Frank. They, um, they are hunting things from the public, right? And I, uh, you don't, I mean, my problem with this is these people all work for us. The the president, the people of the Pentagon, they work for us. They are spending our money. And yet we have to go begging like Oliver Twist uh, for a little nugget of information here and there for, for an explanation of why you're shooting these so-called harmless objects out of the sky at $439,000 a pop. No. I mean, g- give us some explanation. Uh, that's that's my take. All right, I've said enough on that. We'll continue with your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Next hour, I'll talk with Brian Kilme. That'll be a lot of fun. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I'll tell you, uh, one, I, you know, I am a procrastinator, right? And one of the, my, my kind of go-to 
modus operandi is I don't want to do anything, right, in terms of social obligations. And I, w- I am a procrastinator by nature. But I also have the inability to say no to anyone. So what generally will happen to me once or twice a day is someone will say, hey, Frank, you know, how are you? Uh, I'd love to get together with you. Can we get uh, breakfast or dinner or a drink or lunch or coffee? And I say, no, I can't. Uh, I'm real busy that day. I got this and I got that, which is all true. They said, all right, well, if you can't do it that day, how about uh, the following week? Okay. I can't do that. All right. Well, how about a month from now? A month from now, this this specific date, but at that time, okay, I'll do it. Now, in my mind, it's a great relief because I now don't have to worry about this today, tomorrow, or the next day. But the unfortunate reality is those bills all come due, meaning I have to go and deal with that social obligation. And... It's the same pattern every time, which is I dread going and it's an inconvenience to go because it usually means leaving my house earlier or staying out later than I would like to, taking time away from either sleep, show prep or, you know, spending time with my family. And uh, but then I always remember the philosophy that Shatner writes about in his four books on where he deals with this, which is you're always supposed to say yes. And that was kind of Joe Franklin's approach to life in general is always say yes. So I always feel guilty about feeling guilty. You can see what a tortured soul I really am. And um, three weeks ago, I made plans to have dinner with somebody tonight. Good good guy, great guy, a friend of mine, um, interesting guy, lawyer, goes to Africa from time to time. Really just a, a nice guy and a very generous guy, a kind guy. And I'm sure he was going to buy dinner. But for the last 72 hours, all I've been doing is dreading having to go to this dinner because, oh, I'm going to gonna come into Manhattan early. I'm going to have to start my work early or I'm going to have to rush to get it done before the show. I need this like a hole in the head. But I committed three weeks ago. I don't want to cancel. I've canceled on this guy before. I've said no to this guy several times with a bunch of different social opportunities. So I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to cancel again. Well, lo and behold, I just checked my email, and this fella is busy with a case that he's working on, a trial or something, and he canceled dinner Thursday night, which is great. And he gives me the whole. Oh, Frank, I'm sorry. I can't do dinner Thursday night. I got this big trial. It's going. And this to me, you know, in political science, if you ever study political science in college, you spend a lot of time studying game theory, right, where you get the optimal outcome. And for a politician, in if you study game theory, for a politician, a legislator, the optimal outcome is generally getting a pay raise without voting for a pay raise. So you get the political benefit of voting against a pay raise. And then if your colleagues all vote for it, you get the benefit of more money. This to me was the dining equivalent of that. I don't have to go to this thing, but I don't have to be the jerk that's canceled. So that was a great relief. I also decided um, 
you know, I, I really don't love Chinese food. I have to say there was a time in my life where I did, but I, I love Thai. I love Japanese. I love Indian, but Chinese food, every time I uh, am f- forced to order it because we're going to some place where someone wants it and, you know, I'm a team player. I always get my hopes up that what I order is going to be really great. And I'm always disappointed, always disappointed. And we're going to my mother-in-law's on uh, Sunday, and they're ordering Chinese food. And I came to a realization yesterday, because my wife said, here, look at the menu, pick out what you want. And I said, I'm not going to get my hopes up. I'm not ordering. I said, I will just order whatever you have. Because if you went to someone's house for dinner... You would eat whatever they had, whatever they served, and you'd eat it without complaining. So that's going to be my new attitude when it comes to Chinese food, is just order me whatever, and I'll eat whatever. This way, I won't even, in my brain, have a possibility of being disappointed. So that was two very important victories for me. Until next hour, your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everyone, this is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. There was a there was an article in the Newark Star Ledger, headlines by Steve Politi. You can read it online at uh, nj.com. Headline is America's best pizza really in Arizona. Part of the headline. I waited three and a half hours to find out. Pizza Bianco in Phoenix has been heralded as having the best pizza in America. And Steve Politi writes, I was well in my fourth hour waiting for what was declared the best pizza in America when the realization hit me. I could have driven from my house back in New Jersey to any of the hundreds of perfectly delightful pizzerias in our state in the time I spent lingering there, stomach growling, patience running on empty. It better be good. No, scratch that. It better be the best. So um, could any pizza be worth that wait? More than three hours. So that's one corner of the world. Yesterday, I come across this article in The Forward, which is a uh, Jewish newspaper. Headline, Would you wait in line for two hours for a falafel? They certainly would. And it's an article written by uh, Liza Schoenfein, including her visit to the Jewish quarter of Paris and visiting a place called Léas du Falafel, a falafel place. And evidently, you go there on the weekend especially, and it is a minimum two-hour wait. She was not prepared. 
for a two-hour wait. The guy in front of her online said, I was here last weekend, and that's about how long it took. Oh, so you didn't stay on Sunday, I asked. No, I did, and then I came back on Tuesday. So this guy waited in line multiple times in the same week for a falafel from this falafel joint in Paris. That's how great it supposedly is. Steve Politi. Now, Steve Politi is a little bit of a different case because, you know, he's a journalist that's writing about this kind of a thing. He waited in line over three hours to visit what's supposedly the greatest pizza joint in America. So it got me thinking, what food, what restaurant, whether it's takeout or whether it's sit-down dining, have you waited hours to get into? And when I say hours, I mean multiple hours, two hours, two and a half hours, three hours. And was it worth it? If um, if you've never waited two and a half or three hours for food somewhere, what would you wait that amount of time for? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. I was trying to think about some of the long waits that I've had for food over the years. Totono's Pizza in Coney Island, which I think is closed now. Back in the day, there would be a long line there. That would be a long line. Uh, You'd have to wait a while. You wouldn't have to wait two hours. Maybe it would be an hour at most, depending on when you'd go. There's a place for knishes in lower Manhattan called uh, Yona Schimmel's. That place has a long wait. It's not two hours. I was trying to think where I would wait two hours for. You know what it is? It depends uh, if there's something else to do while you're waiting. Uh, For instance, you know, we were just talking about Atlantic City. There are a number of restaurants in casinos, especially when it's busy, that have a two-hour wait. And usually they'll give you a little buzzer or something, or they'll say, come back in 45 minutes, come back in a half hour. But you can go and gamble and go somewhere and have a drink while you're waiting for your table. There's a joint in uh, Cape May called the Lobster House, which a lot of times can have a substantial wait. But what they do is they let you go and wait on this. um, It's kind of cool. They have a boat in the back of the restaurant, which also serves appetizers and has drinks. And you can go onto the boat. It's a schooner. And you can chill out there while you're waiting for your table to be ready in the main portion of the restaurant. So that's not really a a lengthy wait. What is the longest you have ever waited to be served food? 800-848-9222. And was it worth it? 800-848-9222. And if you haven't waited anything crazy, which I don't think I have, honestly. I think Totono's is my longest, which is no more than an hour. Where would you wait? Where would you happily say, oh, yeah, okay, uh, give me blank and I'll wait forever. You know, you know what I remember was the um, was a big thing for a while. You remember the the cronut? The cronut was all of all the rage and it was served at a bakery called uh, Dominique and Cell here in Manhattan. And people would wait for these cronuts forever. 
I mean, I, I think that was a multi- multiple hour wait. I never waited on that line because I don't really have a sweet tooth anyway. But uh, the cronut, it was a combination of a donut and a croissant. But, uh, I, I mean, it's not that important to me to try a cronut, to wait on that line. But that's a place where there was a long line. Where have you waited? And where would you wait? 800 848 That's uh, 800-848-9222. I, um, it's a short list of places. So I mentioned when, um, when we went to Jake's 58 a month or two ago, my wife and my brother-in-law, Jared, while I was checking into our hotel room, we were all hungry, and uh, they basically said, I said, go over to the restaurant and tell them we're going to be however many people we are, six or seven, and uh, I'll be there in a minute. So I start walking to the restaurant, and uh, they're coming out of there, and they said, all right, it's a two-hour wait. Now, they were playing a joke on me because it wasn't really a two-hour wait. It was a 10-minute wait or a 15-minute wait. They thought I was going to flip out or something. Like, oh, I can't believe it's a two-hour wait. My attitude was, oh, okay, because I didn't mind a two-hour wait because we were there in a casino and you could go and gamble or do whatever you wanted to do, and uh, I didn't think that that was that big, of a, that big of a deal. And they were shocked. They said, oh, we thought for sure you were going to go crazy and about it being a two-hour wait. So that's a question uh, that I have for you. What is the longest you've ever waited for food, and was it worth it? And if you've never waited anywhere long for food, how was it? 800-848-9222. This place, Bianco's, that Steve Politi went to, it capitalizes on that waiting. Most customers, as they're waiting for two, three, three and a half hours, they head next door to a bar with tables, leather seats, and board games. And uh, that bar does very, very well. You remember in um, on the TV show Cheers, they had that restaurant Melville's upstairs, and sometimes it would be a very lengthy wait to get into Melville's because it was a high-end restaurant and people would go down to Cheers and have a drink while they were waiting. So it worked out well for Cheers. It seems like that's the case with Bianco's in Arizona. By the way, if you're wondering if the pizza was worth it at Bianco's, USA Today gushed that the wait enhances the spiritual experience. But the customers around Steve Politi weren't exactly singing uh, Goombaya. I'm curious if you've ever found that to be the case, where the weight enhances the experience of Absolutely dining. not. Well, what, what place? There was no place that I would ever wait two hours. In fact, I was at uh, last summer at the Hard Rock Cafe. I went to go to the Hard Rock um, at the Hard Rock Hotel in Atlantic City. Went to go to the Hard Rock Cafe in the Hard Rock on a Tuesday. It was the summer, and it was an hour wait. And I said, uh, no. And I walked out to the boardwalk and went next door to Jimmy Buffett's, and it was like a 15-minute wait. I'm not waiting an hour when I'm starving. Well, especially at the Hard Rock Cafe. That's right. Exactly. A... Yeah, exactly. Like, I've been to how many Hard Rocks? There's another one. Why was it so crowded? I mean, I, I know, know it's summer, but was it a holiday? No. It, that's I, which I didn't understand either. They like Maybe they didn't have the wait staff yet, or, you know, this was in 21. What's the longest you've ever waited? Maybe 45 minutes. Maybe. And where was that? I don't remember. But it was not at a special no, place that it, you made a destination like this guy did to Bianco's. No. And like you said, when you're at a place like Atlantic City, you could go do other right. things. Right. And nowadays they will text you. 
So they'll say, yeah, it's a 45-minute wait, but we'll text you. And I found out when they say that, it's usually like a 20-minute wait. Yeah, the, that place in Cape May that I mentioned, the Lobster House, they give you kind of a little beeper. Right. And, yeah, yeah. and it buzzes when your table's ready. By the way, um, Steve Politi's view was that this place was delicious. They ordered six pies and the wise guy with wood-roasted onions, house-smoked mozzarella, fennel sausage. That was the table's favorite. The The crust was crispy, maybe even a little too charred, and the ingredients were as fresh as advertised. But this is how we end the article. Best pizza in America, though? Sorry. It didn't rewire my synapses, as one breathless review had claimed. Give me the Star Tavern in Orange, New Jersey. Give me a large pie from a half dozen other places just a short drive from my house. Oh, and most of all, give it to me in less than three and a half hours. So I I tend to agree with uh, Matt Blaze, which I hate to do, uh, that uh, very few places, if any, are worth a two-hour wait. Alex Barnard, what's the longest you've ever waited for food? I think it's probably been about two hours, but... Where? Well, so my stipulation is I would never wait that long unless, of course, like Matt Blaze said, they give you the option to have someone text you that a table is ready. Because then I can go right. and, and do, do something. something yeah, right. exactly. Uh, the place I waited the longest for food, and it actually wasn't really food. It was milkshakes. At this place, there's a place downtown called Black Tap. They have these really extravagant milkshakes and when i'm when i talk extravagant i mean i ordered one that was i think it was called the the birthday special or something like that and it was a vanilla milkshake with a frosted glass rim with that had cake frosting and sprinkles on it and a whole slice of cake on top of it no it was i took three sips and said i'm full but how much is that milkshake? Do you remember? Uh, no, I haven't been there in years. It was probably like twenty dollars. Okay, well that's that's a hearty milkshake. The only thing I would ever wait in line for is something stupid like an autograph or well, of who? Who would you wait two hours for an autograph? For? I have waited something like four or five hours for uh, the autograph of Ace Frehley from Kiss, really? the lead the lead okay. guitarist. Um. Yeah, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because for the uh, Shatner VIP experience, there were 300 people, right? I mean, now, the photos all take 15 seconds, so the line does move quickly because I I went back and waited with my friend Frank Fontano because I felt bad that I couldn't, you know, get him to cut the line. But, uh, you know, there were people that waited an hour. Both nights uh, for, you know, a photograph with Shatner, and that's with behind plexiglass. Hey, I will tell you who I would happily wait uh, three hours to spend time with, and that is my friend Kyle O'Brien. And unless this is a very clever prank, I am told Kyle O'Brien is on the line right now. Kyle, is that you, my brother? That is me, bud. I'm up. Well, what are you doing up so early? This is uh, uh, This is usually around the time you're going to bed. I know. I'm doing the opposite. I went to bed early. Now I'm like, I'm driving back into the city to stop over Sammy Vasallo's house, grab some things for him out of his apartment, and then I'm headed down to Montego Bay for Nick Pabone's uh, wedding. Oh, Nick's getting married? Yeah, what an idiot. That, that poor girl. I don't even know who's getting married, but uh, that poor girl. Um, well, please thank Nick for the invitation and have a good time. He's getting married in Jamaica? He's getting married in the grill, but we're flying into Montego and then a uh, little you know, passenger bus uh, oh, over uh, to the other 
part okay. of the island. But, but it's a destination wedding. Totally destination wedding. I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be great. Well, that's that's that sounds wonderful and incredibly inconvenient at the same time. Now, uh, for Kyle, people that don't know you, and uh, this is, I think, the first time you've been on our show since it's been national. Um, you are a, a veteran of the New York, not just New York, national and international nightlife scene. Uh, you have restaurants. You got one of the best pizza places in America, Williamsburg Pizza. That's not me saying that. New York Times has said that. You uh, were one of the brains behind uh, Hotel Chantel for a long time. You got uh, places in Brooklyn, places in Manhattan, places in Jersey. You, you, you know a thing or two about customer service. You also know a thing or two about uh, waiting and going out. What is the longest you have ever waited both for food and to get into a bar or something? I, I, I was really trying to jot my memory for a second there while I was waiting, and I'm like, I'm not sure if I've waited all that long, but I've definitely never tried to. You know, of course, I'd walk up and ask for some professional courtesy or something along those lines. But, uh, you know, I've definitely been denied at bars before. You know, I might have been rolling with a pack of uh, guys or maybe a friend's too drunk or maybe I was too drunk. But um, I'm trying to think the longest I might have waited, maybe an hour Back in the day, remember when Mission Chinese Food opened up uh, <laughs> down Lower East Side, their original one? Uh, I might have, like, you know, went there, put my name in, and then walked back to my bar down the street and came back. Nothing too crazy, but uh, I, I know people that absolutely will stalk websites, will pay people to wait in line, will do everything for and I mean, there is some great food out there. There is stuff that's worth it. Well, what's, uh, so let's start with that. What's worth waiting, say, um, 45 minutes or an hour or an hour and a half? Not plugging any of my own places. I'm only going to plug friends' places. I'm not plugging. I'm just actually giving an honest uh, opinion. Uh, Arthur and Sons of the West Village right now, I've waited. I'm friends with the owner. It's good. I'm not going to lie. It's really good. For like a red sauce Italian joint, it's it's cool. It's trendy right now. It's it's worth the wait. Um, what else is worth a wait? Uh, uh, Rock City up in uh, Woodstock. Rock City's worth the wait. What kind of food is that? Uh, or what kind of place? Um, Good Night Rock City. It's the spinoff from Sylvia. Uh, which is also in Woodstock there, New Yorkers that went further north uh, out of the city and uh, opened up two amazing restaurants. Forget the gentleman's name, but the guy absolutely nails it every time, both style of decor and food. Um, Then there is uh, another spot, you know, just blows your mind food-wise. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, It's a vegan uh, Mexican joint in... All over New York. Actually, I think he's got like hmm. five now. Uh, opening one in Miami, I believe. Now, this um, USA Today, this a review they did of uh, this pizza shop in Arizona, they said that the weight almost added to the spiritual experience. As good as all the places that you just mentioned are, do you think that that would ever be the case where the waiting would enhance your experience and enjoyment of the dining experience? No. No, of course not. It's ridiculous. No, 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 I'm just, 
Uh, yeah, no, and I'm, I'm just I'm not a believer of anything pizza outside of New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. I, I just I'm trying to think of a good one that I've had anywhere. Maybe, which is funny, which is this is actually really funny. Pizza Express in London might be the closest thing to like a bar pie over in Europe. Really? Oh. Yeah, it's it's a weird. Uh, it's like they're Domino's, but it's it's actually fairly decent. Yeah. I remember just being broken over there and ordering a lot of that. That's good to know. Hey, uh, so we mentioned your birthday when it was your birthday on the air the other day because you share a birthday with, and we did a whole thing. I don't know if you heard it, but we did a whole thing mentioning you, and uh, a lot of people called in and mentioned it was Reagan's birthday and uh, Babe Ruth and whomever else. What did you do for your birthday? I hope it was something ridiculous. Uh, It was nothing too ridiculous. I actually took out my staff. From uh, from Danny's, my new restaurant down in Red Bank, New Jersey. Uh, it was the only time I could take him out for a holiday party, and I uh, sacrificed my birthday for that. Well, they're they're worth it. They're they're rad. Well, that's outstanding. That's great. Yeah, I um, yeah. next time I am uh, next time I am in Red Bank with uh, William Shatner. I told him we're gonna we'll come by Danny's and uh, and check it out. So, uh, when are you getting back from uh, from Montego Bay? I believe I'm back on Monday. Great. All right. Well, you got to stop in and uh, pay us a visit in studio the next time you're awake during 100%. these hours. All I right, will, man. I'll stay up. All right. I love you. It's great to talk with you. Tell love Nick you congratulations much. and uh, thank you for well, the invite. Yeah. yeah. All right. I'll talk to you guys See you later. later. Bye. Take care. 800-848-9222. Our mutual friend, Nick. Yeah. You know, Nick, um, Nick and I used to be very close and then he got mad at me for something silly years ago. And we kind of lost touch, but uh, I, I haven't seen him since uh, his mom passed away and I was out the wake. But I, yesterday, you remember that Ford Taurus that I was talking about? Um, that was my favorite car that I ever drove. I bought that from Nick. That was his car. So it's funny how things work work out. 800-848-9222. What's the longest you have ever waited for food and was it worth it? And what's the longest you ever would wait for food? Eight hundred eight. See, I'd love to hear somebody call and say, hey, yeah, I waited three hours to get into the Annadale Terrace, and it was wonderful. It was worth it. I'd love to hear that. But because I don't have anything like that. 800-848-9222, especially if you're hungry. Because the hungrier you get, you know what happens? It's the worst situation that you get all hungry, and then you fill up on bread because you're willing to eat anything. And then you don't enjoy the meal that you're probably paying a fortune for. That's the just the worst. Barry in Syracuse. Hello, Barry. Uh, yes. Uh, thank you, Frank. Uh, I will tell uh, you, you, your friend Ben Walsh there. Is, this is outside of his jurisdiction of city of Syracuse. But there's a hot dog stand, which you may be aware of, and I'm sure some of your listeners are. It's called Hyde's. It can be a hundred freaking degrees. The humidity could be a hundred and thirty. People will wait. They're lined up around on a dog lake. I'm telling you, they will wait three, two, three hours just to get. Well, they won't get one. But a hot dog and a coney. The coney is a. It's a. The Hoffman brand calls it. Obians with an S, and I can't remember, and that's terrible. But anyways, uh, and what makes two it other places, what two, makes it so two, good? What makes it so good? It's beats me, beats me. Uh, but people will wait. I'm telling you, if you if you look hides up on the internet, 
They've been in business over 100 years. And guess what? Now they've uh, changed hands. But back in the day, like I'm only talking 30 years ago, you had bag chips, you had uh, burned dairy milk, and you had uh, uh, soft drinks right from the uh, glass bottles and mustard. People would come in and say, hey, you got ketchup. Everybody in line, the people that worked there wouldn't even have to say, they must uh, ketchup. You don't put ketchup on a hot dog. Same thing with relish. You got relish? No. All they had was French's, the 50-gallon jug with a big squeegee bottle. Uh, it was amazing. Absolutely amazing. Uh, I got two more real quick okay, from Syracuse. Real quick, because I just want to get to some other people, and then we got Brian Kilmeade waiting the I wings. got two Go more real quick ones from your friend Ben Walsh. Mm-hmm. Dinosaur barbecue. People stand up and line up several hours to get into that joint. And the other place is Coleman's up on Tip Hill, where the light is, the only light in the nation is red on top, excuse me, green on top, red on the bottom. Okay. Well, uh, thank you, Barry. What is the longest you've ever waited for food, and was it worth it? Answer that question. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Fred in Yonkers. Hello, Fred. Hey, Frank. Good morning. Morning. We had to to wait at Cake Boss for three hours for a couple of cupcakes. It was ridiculous. And how were they? They were okay, but the kids loved them. You have to do it for your kids, Frank. Otherwise, I wouldn't have waited. Well, do they? Did they think? Because they had to do the wait, and I would think three-hour wait for a child is even worse than for an adult. Did they think the three-hour wait was worth it? Frank, it was awful. They were crawling all over each other. I can imagine. Yeah. But how did they but, like the 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 cake? You know, the whole thing. It was huge. I don't know. Was it about ten years ago. It was a huge thing down there. There was hundreds of people waiting. Wow. So you do what you got to do for your, your kids, you know, buddy? Yeah, I, that's for sure. 800-848-9222. Rick is in New Jersey. Hello, Rick. Yes, good morning, Frank. Good morning. Good morning. Um, before we start, real quick, I'll tell you the story about waiting. But how do you know about the Star Tavern pizza? That's my pizzeria. How would you know about that? I don't know about it. That's Steve Politi that knows about it. Oh, okay, because it's the best pizza place in New Jersey. Anyway. Uh, I was in L.A. I wouldn't wait three hours to get married. I, I don't, I'm not a good waiter. Uh, someone takes me to a fancy restaurant in L.A. It's one of those restaurants where you got to pick a number one, number two, number three, and it's not a Chinese restaurant. You know, it's just like one of these real expensive restaurants. And we're waiting, and we're waiting. And eventually, I start getting lightheaded. And I said, listen, I'm starting to get dizzy. And, and they said this, which totally blew my mind. Why don't we go down the street and eat at that restaurant down there while we're waiting? Uh, oh, what? Let's go to another restaurant and eat so we can <laughs> wait to get into this restaurant. And I just said, listen, we're going down that restaurant. We're eating. I'm going to pass out. And I, I didn't wait. I, I wasn't going to do it. So, no, I wouldn't wait. Yeah, it's like that, uh, that Seinfeld where they're in the Chinese restaurant. Robert is in Suffolk. Robert, what's the longest you ever waited to eat? Hour and a half. And the only reason I did was because my friend was taking me out for my birthday at a Boulder Creek, a chain restaurant. I thought that was unreasonable, but I had to bear with it. Do you know that restaurants can overbook? That's so that people can 
be directed to the bar and they can make more money while you wait. And that's a very bad thing. Yeah, I would, I would agree stomach. with that. I would agree with that, Robert. Thank you. Hey, uh, Brian Kilmeade is going to join us in a moment. But first, we're going to give you an opportunity to win $1,000. If you are the seventh caller right now, you can uh, have a chance to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. Be the seventh caller now to 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. We're going to play the $1,000 Minute straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno, and uh, this is a selection from Linda Barron, who celebrated her birthday yesterday. Uh, she's the head of the Staten Island Chamber of Commerce. Happy birthday, Linda. All right. Uh, without further ado, it is time for us to see if we can't give away $1,000 as part of... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Well, let's say hello to Bill on WCBM in Maryland. Hello, Bill. How you doing, Frank? I'm great doing great, Bill. It's great to talk with you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for playing. Have you heard this segment before, Bill? Sure have. Great. So you know what to do, right? That's correct. All right. Let's get started. What is the last letter in the English alphabet? D. What month is St. Patrick's Day? Uh, March. What professional sport was Mike Tyson a champion in? Boxing. What billionaire was the founder of Microsoft? Mm, Microsoft. Bill Gates. Who was George W. Bush's vice president? George W. Bush. Dick Cheney. What actor played attorney Denny Crane on the TV show Boston Legal? Oh, oh this is a tough one. We've been talking uh, about him a lot lately. Oh, jeez. Denny Crane. Um, I don't have a clue. Take a guess. A- any actor. Any actor whose name you've heard on this show in the last week or two. Um... Can't, uh, Daniel Craig. I don't All know. right, I'm sorry. No, it was William Shatner played Denny Crane. Oh, um, oh wow. Uh, so I'm sorry, Bill. You didn't win, um, especially somebody who shares your name. I, I'm now on a, a Bill basis with William Shatner. I'm sorry you didn't win, Bill. Play again in the future. Please call me again. We'll talk soon, okay? All right, thanks a lot. Thank you, Bill. Uh, Still no consolation prizes we have to give away, right? Or no? Okay, all right. We're working on that. 
We're working on that. All right. Without further ado, uh, it well, what should come as consolation not only to Bill but for everybody that is not earning an extra thousand dollars today is you get to hear a little bit from Brian Kilmeade, New York Times bestselling author, co-anchor of Fox and Friends on the Fox News Channel, and a nationally syndicated radio talk show host. Brian, it's great to talk with you. How was the Super Bowl? Uh, it was a good game. Uh, you know, interesting week. Uh, I think that they mislabeled Phoenix a desert. Because it was freezing, uh, but uh, it was it was really uh, it was an interesting week. I haven't done the Super Bowl in a few years, so it was it was good to get out there and and uh, and see what's going on in the rest of the world. And uh, last week, when we were talking at this time, you indicated you didn't see any way that the Eagles could lose. Are you blaming the holding call for your inaccurate prediction? No, just inaccurate. I, I would say that I was shocked that the the second half turned around like this. I thought to myself, they're one possession away from blowing them out by halftime. And th- this the game changed so dramatically afterwards. And it was when you see Patrick Mahomes limping off the field, the team trailing by 10 points, halftime looming, I'm about to get the ball back. I mean, when this guy gets off the field, he's limping and it doesn't get any better. So he's trying to walk off the, the ankle injury which he came in injured, and I'm thinking, these guys are going to get crushed. I'm wondering if Fox ratings is just going to plummet after mm, the third quarter. Right. But he, they just start running the ball, and we all know what happened. 113 million people watch that, are a record audience. Uh, obviously, I'm sure the competitiveness of the game uh, is, is a factor here, but I think people really, they have an appetite for football that is unquenchable at this point. Doesn't that seem that uh, this is the days of wine and roses as far as football is concerned? I mean, then you have the XFL that starts this weekend, and then you have the USFL, which is backed by Fox and NBC, which is ready to start, I believe, in uh, late April. So America's going to get their full uh, their fill of football. And believe it or not, USFL first year, first spring league to come back for a second year, had higher ratings in the MLS and some hockey games. And so America loves football. And arena football is coming back, too, which was defunct for a while. Do you see any of these uh, alternative football leagues, XFL, USFL, or the Arena Football League 2.0, uh, maybe not being a competitor for the, with the NFL, but it, at least getting to the point where they have long-term sustainability? Yeah, I definitely. I mean, in fact, I've talked to so many people at Fox who owns a, a majority of the league. And they're in for the long term. They think they've got a great property. They're doing it right uh, for venues now. So New Jersey's not going to play in New Jersey for probably another year. You're not going to play uh, Detroit, Canton, which is near Cleveland. Detroit, there's a, a team in Michigan, the Panthers, uh, Memphis Showboats. And then you have the Birmingham Stallions, which averaged 22,000, the only team to really have a home game. They're just trying to keep expenses down. And they want to be fiscally responsible. Now owners are lining up. And what they're going to do is never compete with the NFL, but be a triple-A. Mm. It makes total sense to me. I mean, think about this. How many play, athletes develop at 22, 23, 24? But, you know, you go, to a, you know, you go to Miami of Ohio or you go to Long Island University and you bloom late. But I don't make the NFL, so I quit. No Europe. Nobody plays anywhere. So now you have a place to go. Now, the, one of the USFL uh, uh, returners ended up being all pro for the Cowboys last year. He was out of football. It's an incredible thing. And, uh, look, I hope they, they all do well. I'm looking forward to seeing some of the uh, the XFL and the USFL games. So hopefully 
hopefully uh, those are uh, as compelling as uh, as some of the games were last year. Now, in terms of uh, the political scene, which is America's other world sport these days, this week the uh, Republican presidential field of declared candidates grew by 100 percent with former South Carolina governor and former U.N. ambassador Nikki Haley jumping in. I have devoted my life to this fight. And I'm just getting started. For a strong America, for a proud America, I am running for president of the United States of America. How do you see uh, Nikki Haley's prospects at this point, Brian? Um, You know, I see her lasting through uh, New Hampshire. And then going south, the, the thing Nikki Haley has going for her is competence. She knows all these issues. She, she knows what it's like to be a governor. She doesn't get, you know, she knows it was time to take down the Confederate flag in South Carolina. I know that's crazy for us here in New York. Why would you be flying the Confederate flag? But uh, different heritage. She's uh, taking it down. You know, I, I think that she was great as you an ambassador, more uh, like a State Department person who was direct, reporting directly to the president. And I think she's got great composure, got the husbands in the military. A lot of people are dismissing her, including the former president, saying she's got 2%. Barack Obama was getting 2%. So I am more bullish on her than almost everybody that I saw last night. And the thing that she's going to have trouble doing is she she says, if you're after 75 years old, you should get a competency test. That's clearly a shot at Trump, Mm. all right? But then when Sean Hannity asked her last night, uh, basically, what do you do different than President Trump? I'm talking about Joe Biden. That's not going to work. It, you're going to have to go directly at former president. Agree with him on this, this, and this. Here's where the rubber hit the road, Syria. Here's where the rubber hit the road. I would have been, never would have met with Kim Jong-un. Whatever it is. So you can't keep going at Joe Biden for the nomination. And Tim Scott's going to have a hard time, too, because most of the policies that they all are for, Donald Trump initiated. So it's going to be you can't go on there with uh, and win a Republican nomination and totally divest yourself from anything you did with President Trump. So I don't think she's thought that through. Do you? I, I, I don't. I think she's maybe running for vice president here. And I think uh, that might be what this is about. But the, what I have a tough time uh, look seeing uh, is a lane for her because – a lot of the Trump people are not going to be for her because she kind of violated her pledge not to run against Trump. And she's at cross purposes uh, with Trump now in terms of uh, seeking the same nomination that he's seeking. She also was critical of him after the January 6th situation. But she's also not going to appeal to the anti-Trump people because she was a part of the Trump administration and praised him and defends her friendship with him and was his U.N. ambassador. So I I guess unless Trump is out of the race for either, you know, health reasons, God forbid, or legal reasons, I can't see I don't really see Elaine for her being the nominee. But do you see Elaine for anyone then outside Yunkin? They're all associated with President Trump. I mean, Governor Hogan's got no shot. I mean, a moderate from Maryland and the state's a mess. Uh, you know, might be a nice guy. I, I, don't, I don't find him compelling. So everybody else is linked with Trump. Pompeo, Tim Scott. I mean, Tim Scott did the empowerment zones. They was, he was there all the time. Um, who else? Ted Cruz is not running. So, yeah, Mike Pompeo, my goodness, he was, he was very loyal to Trump. 
I don't know if he's going to say I was forced to do the Afghanistan uh, negotiation. I don't want to do it. I, you know, and I, I don't know because a lot of people who support Donald Trump thinks he want they want to get out of Afghanistan. I didn't. I, I would I wanted to keep twelve hundred troops there or five thousand, whatever it was. So. Who what? else is going to get I into the fray that's the, not linked with Trump? The one candidate you didn't mention is Ron DeSantis, who does seem, depending on which poll you look at, to be doing really well in a hypothetical matchup with Trump. Yes, and he's different uh, in, a, in a way because he's doing a lot of things that Trump didn't do because he's governor of a state and he's getting in there with CRT and he's blowing up the AP exam and he's taking on Disney uh, and their wokeness, something they weren't able to do in Georgia. They just caved. So... There was some domestic, there was some state issues that he did on his own. Uh, so, but he is, if without Donald Trump, he doesn't get the endorsement. Um, he doesn't get the nomination and beat, uh, and win the governorship by one point one time, and then he wins by 20 the next time. So there's a strong link there. With Trump's attack on him, he calls him meatball. Uh, I don't know if people have been around Ron DeSantis. Uh, I, he was, but he's not fat. Well, I mean, I, yeah, I couldn't tell. It, and and you, my, you know, I'll be honest. My eyes kind of glaze over with the Trump name calling because I just find it so tiresome. But I, I couldn't tell if that was supposed to be a shot at his physique or if it oh, was yeah. supposed to be an anti-Italian thing because DeSantis is Italian. <laughs> I never thought of that. Yeah, I never because there is Swedish meatballs. So just keep in mind, <laughs> don't true. get offended about everything, Frank. That's so. true. Yeah, but yeah, but um right. so but you're right. I mean, I never thought about that because he did, you know, try to alienate the Asian community by going after um right, Elaine Chow's wife. Yeah, that's for sure. Hey, um but is the best thing for <laughs> Trump a a big field of candidates? I mean, I would think so, right? I mean, if there's seven candidates all splitting the anti-Trump vote, I would think that's a much better position for the former president than if it's a one-on-one with him and DeSantis or him and anyone else. Well, a couple of things. Yes, uh, that's the theory, and I, I subscribe to it. But do you know how deep he goes on his uh, opposition research? He brought up in 2011 um, remarks Nikki Haley made about cutting Medicare and Social Security. And I noticed that in 2015 when he was running. I said, wait a second. You got opposition on everybody, not just low energy Jeb Bush, but you knew something about Huckabee, the way he ran Arkansas when they had, they briefly had a skirmish. Marco Rubio, he had uh, you know, uh, he had things on Rubio. I said to myself, "Wow, for a guy that looks like he's up there winging it, mm. he certainly can go deep." You know, and Ted Cruz. We all know Ted Cruz was conspiring uh, to to uh, with his dad to assassinate JFK. Yeah, I mean, that was ridiculous, but. Uh, but the, the other stuff about Ted Cruz is interesting. He doesn't belong here. He's really from Canada, you know, and I don't know. Uh, so Trump will go deep. He'll do his research. He'll get on the stage. But I think that Nikki Haley last night with John Hannity should have just said, this is where I'm different than President Trump rather than he's 78 years old. He needs a competency well, exam. Yeah, that's why I do think maybe she is running for vice president because she didn't go out of her way to attack uh, Trump on anything substantive. Uh, where she might differ from him. And I, I guess foreign policy is the easiest area because, uh, you know, obviously her experience with the U.N. and, and that whole thing. But uh, I guess we'll see where it goes. Hey, uh, the other thing that you have been all over and just doing a great job covering is this Ohio train derailment. What is the situation like there in Ohio? What do we know about uh, how we got here and where we're going? 
I was stunned this week when we booked Bill Johnson, who represent the Republican Air Force officer who represents uh, Palestine, the people of Palestine in that district. He said, well, no, the water's fine and uh, the testing's good and the, those are the normal amount of fish that are dying. And we're getting it. I said, well, I was stunned after I hung up the interview. And I go, Am I mis- did I mislabel this? You know, because I sat on the plane coming back from Phoenix. I'm all ready to go with these issues. And I'm thinking to myself, what do you mean there's no problem? And now Bill Johnson showed up last night. You know who didn't? Mayor Pete. And know who didn't show up in the town hall? Uh, Northern Southern. Uh, the uh, Norfolk Southern. The guys who owned the train. Mm. Well, we thought our security was at risk. Are you kidding? I mean, Bill Bill Johnson, snap out of it. These people, you evidently, our reporters are there. They say the smell is is strong throughout the whole town. Who picked up just one mile evacuation zone? Imagine that. One mile evacuation zone. Now you can go back to your life. Now, really, uh, now with the water, you could use the water. Although, if I'm governor, I'm going to use a bottled water. Which one is it? So... They're not getting answers. They're being cast aside. The administration doesn't address it. The Secretary of Transportation doesn't show up. And this group doesn't show up. You need the president on the phone with this group saying, you get down there and you deal with these people that say, we'll be on the ground. We just we feel as though we're going to be physically threatened. Do you have that little respect for the community and law enforcement? You think that you, uh, a town hall is going to get out of hand? Mm. If you have the answer to the questions, show up. And by the way, what is going on with all these trains? There was a derailment in uh, in South Carolina. There was a there was a problem on the tracks in Texas. You, you, all of a sudden, you got toxic chemicals and a axles breaking on a train. Do you ever remember stuff like this? No, this is uh, this is unprecedented. So, what do you think it's about? Do you think it's a failure of uh, America's infrastructure, or is it something else? I think there's a lot. I think you know. I know very little about transporting. Toxic chemicals. I just don't have that in my background. But I don't, I'm just wondering why would you put something like this on a train through a town and not alert people? Evidently, they went underneath the 10 of the 15 cars were full of these toxic chemicals that used to burn people's eyes out and guts out in World War I. Uh, I believe it's called vinyl chloride. And now all of a sudden you're traveling through and there's no alert in the area because they didn't have every car filled up or more than half the cars filled up with this toxic chemical. So they're trying to skate through, and they're going through these towns, all of them at risk. They have a derailment, and their best risk is, mm. and their best approach is, let's blow it up, do a controlled detonation. I was watching one of these uh, hazardous chemical uh, person last night with Tucker, and he said, I would never have done that because you lose uh, of uh, the chemicals. You don't know what's going in the water. So uh, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm willing to admit I've never dealt with a situation like this. I've never been a part of fixing a derailed train. But I would be asking the questions, and I would be demanding answers, and I could not be more let down. And maybe I shouldn't be, maybe I should expect it. The transportation secretary doesn't show up. No one blames him for a train derailment. At least try to get right, answers. Right, right. I mean, people. it's the same uh, criticism of uh, of uh, of Brown after uh, Hurricane Katrina. Part of the re- response was uh, cosmetic. I mean, you know, what could uh, he have actually done if he went to New Orleans after Katrina? But it's uh, it conveys an image that you're actually concerned about something. Hey, um, tell me what's uh, coming up on Fox and Friends and on radio today, Brian. Well, uh, radio got a great lineup. Um, I'm going to lead with that. Uh, Mark Thiessen's going to be with this Congressman Michael Waltz. He's been in these private uh, briefings on this balloon situation. George P. Bush is in studio. 
Uh, I'm going to talk to him. He joined a law firm. You know, he lost. They, all the Bushes lost at one point. What's next for him? He also is an expert on the border and energy. Uh, Lee Zeldin's going to be on. Uh, who better to break down what the Republican message will be? And can anyone take out Trump? Lee Zeldin and Dan Bielak. It's been one year. He's head of uh, the Treasury for the Ukrainian government. It's been one year since uh, the invasion. And now uh, the Ukrainians standing strong, but they're about to absorb a huge between a 200,000 Russian army invasion at five different points. Are they equipped to do it? There's meetings in Munich right now to try to rally support around them. There's a lot of people listening to us right now, Frank, that don't want us in Ukraine, mm. want us to ignore it. They don't understand. It is not an option. The Ukrainians are taking out our enemy, and they're moving already, the Russians, to Moldova. They'll finish off Georgia and then I Poland. At one point, we're going to be, if we don't stop them here using Ukraine and Ukraine can't stop them, we are going to be in a world war. They're our best chance to stop it. Most people listening to us right now, uh, and you might not agree with me, and, that, and that's fine, don't agree with me. Uh, Mark Levin obviously does. I think Sean does. Tucker does not. Charlie Kirk does not. Laura Ingram, I don't think, does. Um, there's a lot of people. Uh, well, I, that's what I think it's Will great Kane. to have the diversity of, uh, of views, right? right. Hear all, all points of view, right? That's what talk radio is about. It's what cable news is uh, at, at its best yeah, about. N- yeah, no one sings from the same hymn sheet here. I, to me, it's so abundantly clear. But and I just think there's so much at stake. So that, I'm going to talk. I'm touching. I might even do my opening monologue on Saturday about it. But a lot of people just don't want to hear it because, it, you know, America gets re- remarkably bored of their conflicts. If they're not over, they don't start quick and end quick. Right, unless we're so shooting at that's balloons, that's for sure. All right, uh, Brian, uh, it's always great to talk with you. It's a treat to talk with you each week. Uh, I'm looking forward to hearing that interview with Lee Zeldin especially. We'll see you on radio. We'll see you on TV. Thank you. Go get him, Frank. 15 seconds of fame in a moment. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. This song, uh, a classic. It's available on iTunes. Just search The Other Side of Midnight. I believe it's 99 cents. It's by Stevie G and the Fantastic Voyages. Without further ado, it is time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Eddie! Been a tense night, ladies and gentlemen. Hello, hello. Everybody needs a laugh. Let's try to lighten it up, will you? Come on. Let's perk it up. We're New Yorkers. Let's go. E. Frank. Yes, uh, Mayor Eric Adams has stated publicly that he wants some balance in our communities. Uh, why doesn't uh, Eric Adams denounce uh, the lethargic policies of former Mayor de Blasio right now? 
Evelyn. Frank, when I go to the voting booth, I have one question for myself. Am I better today than I was four years ago? Well, I paid $9 for eggs because it would cost me $160 a month to buy a breakfast sandwich. Cheech. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Wake up, Americans, and get Antifa. Mike. Look at the Dove Sherry Deli shooting online. An innocent New York City cop was sent to... Pete. Sizzle moron, sizzle moron, sizzle moron. Roger. Uh, Tina Fey and Amy Poehler, restless leg, tour that's hilarious and very clever... Why can't they have smoking and non-smoking in Atlantic City? And Pete Buttigieg is not qualified. He doesn't know anything. So figure ahead. All right. That slams the lid on things for today. Back tomorrow. Is tomorrow Friday already? Woo. Must mean it's time for Ask Frank Anything. You have a day, 20 hours, to come up with some interesting questions for tomorrow's program. You want to stay in touch with me, please do so. Uh, You can find me on Twitter at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. Until tomorrow, Frank Morano. Good day.